2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 86, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. Now, before we get to today's episode, I want to thank Jerry Salmon for his one-time donation to the So Much Pingle podcast. Uh, Much appreciated, Jerry, and thank you so much. And as always, I'm grateful to all the show's patrons who help to keep the show moving forward. And, you know, supporting the podcast is easy to do, and there are several ways to do so. Uh, You can use Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation like Jerry. Uh, But I will tell you more about that at the end of the show. I also want to give a shout-out to Justin Michaels and Marty Whalen for their recent comments and suggestions uh, regarding the show. And uh, just for being awesome dudes in general. As I've often said, folks, I'm open to your comments and your suggestions and feedback, whatever you got. Just uh, drop me a note to so muchpingle at gmail.com, and so much pingle is all one word. Okay, the episode. Uh, how to frame this one? Uh, well, to start, uh, I want to issue my first content warning ever on the show uh, because we will be talking about trapping and euthanizing raccoons during the episode. And I hope everyone can keep this in perspective. Uh, with raccoons, uh, much like pythons in the Everglades or lionfish off the Florida coast, it's it's not the fault of the individual animal. But but when raccoon populations are not kept in check, uh, they become an overwhelmingly destructive force. And humans must step in and play the role of the missing predators that historically kept those populations uh, under control. Uh Euthanizing animals is not an easy task, but sometimes it is the only way to prevent other organisms from completely disappearing altogether. So this past June, I drove up to Iowa to record an interview with Dr. Josh Otten, Don Becker, and Jim Sharash about their ongoing project with Illinois mud turtles, ornate box turtles, and western hognose snakes. And I don't want to front load this too much more, but suffice to say that initially this was a survey project, but Along the way, conservation and restoration components were added. Before we talked, I spent the day in the field with Josh and Don and Jim. And I also want to give a shout out to Laura Sharash, Jim's wife, and Jeff Faircloth, and May Kim and Ellis, lovely folks who were also present and willingly gave their time and effort to the project. So it was a long day already by the time we set our tired carcasses down uh, to record. So our conversation jumps around a little bit, and since we were in Don's living room, the acoustics are far from studio quality, but I think they're clear enough. I also recorded some conversations on the site during the day, which I have strung together into a 25-minute segment at the end of our recorded interview, so bonus uh, the sound quality for that is not the best. I'm using my handheld Zoom HN4 recorder, but again, sufficient for our purposes. So at some point, I need to come up with a better uh, in the field recording rig. But in the meantime, let's get to my interview with Josh and Don and Jim. Okay. Let's have a sound test check.
1: Test, 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 test. Check
3: won't do. Check, check. <sighs> You need Two? to be a little...
4: This far. Like, right in here. Okay. You need better microphones. Oh, they'll pick up. They just get no. noisier. These microphones... I okay. listened to
1: a couple of these, and I think it sounds fantastic, so...
4: Yeah, but you think my headset on my computer sounds fantastic.
2: Well, I'm not getting a right error, so I'm, I'm going to say we are already recording. Hooray! All right. Um So... Hi everybody, and welcome back to the show. And uh, today I'm up in Iowa, sitting around in uh, Don's living room, and uh, here around the microphones with me, I have Dr. Josh Otten. Hi, Josh.
1: Hello. Thank you.
2: Jim Sharash. Yay. And Don Becker. (laughs) Hello. Good to see you all. Um, I'm glad I could uh, meet with you all up here in uh, Iowa. I'm up here to talk to you guys about some specific, uh, projects or if like, I, as I like to call it good works that you guys are engaged in here in Iowa. And it's, a uh, uh, herp, some herp conservation projects that you guys have sort of uh, rolled up into a, a single, a single ball, if you will. But we can't really talk about where it takes place. And we have some good reasons for that, but I'm here to talk to you about, uh, Your work with, uh, in no particular order, ornate box turtles, Mm. uh, Western hognose snakes Mm. and mud turtles. Hold hold on. Let's, let's, let's call it what they are. Illinois mud turtles. (laughs) Illinois mud turtles.
3: Right. That's controversial.
2: Yeah. So if you follow taxonomy, uh, the, uh, the turtle up here in Iowa, that's the, you could call it a yellow mud turtle, uh kind of sternin flavisens and uh, but back in the day it was also called the Illinois mud turtle which is a subspecies of the yellow mud turtle uh, and there's you know back and forth on what the the thing is, actually is but I guess you could call it the Iowa mud turtle for that matter
0: mm.
4: so
2: they're getting to be endemic to the state up here so right
4: yeah
2: so we're going to talk about that and it's it's a shame because we can't really we have to be really cagey about where this thing takes place um, because, uh, there are bad people out there who uh, would just, if they knew where these things were and where this project was taking place, they would try to swoop in and collect these animals and try to sell them, which is uh, about the lowest form of behavior I can imagine in terms of, uh, herps.
4: Yeah. And this, and this isn't even a hypothetical. I know there's some people who say we, we overreact on the risk of poaching. We have two very notorious box turtle poachers in the state of Iowa. Um, One of them, when he was um, raided his house back in 1999 and 2000, the rumor was his house accounted for two-thirds of all the ornate box turtles in the state of Iowa.
2: And this guy's not in prison? No. No.
4: And he didn't learn his lesson either. He was later also convicted of selling bald eagle feathers, I think 10 years after the fact, so...
2: Yeah, so we've got we've got uh, we've got knuckleheads that um, look at these these animals and see dollar signs. So um, it's kind of a shame, but we have to be kind of cagey about uh, where this all takes place. But nevertheless, um, we're here to talk about this project, where which I think Josh you, know, you can tell us uh, how this got to start. But I think this really started uh, sort of revolved around the the mud turtle. Is that correct?
1: That, that's correct. So when the project started. Um, it's a private preserve. Uh, the preserve was set aside in the mid 70s when the project kicked off, you know, with most of the focus around the mud turtles. Uh, it exchanged hands. Uh, a couple of different uh, biologists had worked on the project for a number of years up until 2017. Uh, they had asked me to take over uh, the following year to start 2018. And I was uh, just about ready to leave to go work on a PhD. Uh, out of state and i wanted to do this project and luckily knew jim and don which brought them on then to uh basically do all the fun work for me uh while i was out of state
2: okay so the the project expanded from you to you three correct correct okay and so uh let's talk a little bit about the, the other two uh the other two guys in your crew jim you're uh you're retired I am. I am. So you've got some time to work on these.
3: Yeah. I, I I lost my, I'd worked at the newspaper in Cedar Rapids for many years and I got, you know, downsized like a lot of people. And, uh, I took a couple of different jobs and then one day this popped up and I looked at Laura, my wife, and she said, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) So I quit working and, uh, I've been doing this basically since.
2: And Don, you are not retired, but you have you, you set your own schedule. You are an independent contractor in the world of uh, uh, IT programming and uh, commercial programming uh, for for various people. So that's what you do for a living.
4: Yeah, and it was not quite to Jim's extreme of I just retired to do the job. But uh, so when I found out I had the opportunity to be part of the research in 2018, I told my customers I am doing no work for the next six months. I need only emergencies. Uh, and the nice thing is I get paid the same either way because I have some service contracts with them and they didn't push back at all. I'm good at what I do with them. So when I told them no major projects for six months, they just had to deal with it. So, well, and now they know it's, by the way, every spring and for four month periods, at least no major projects.
2: Got it. Okay.
4: I, you
1: know, I'd like to add that starting this project off, it's been quite a, a great experience, collaborative effort because as the person that's kind of overseeing it, as I think about how it's going to happen, the two people I'd want to help the most, these two guys, because one, uh, they're passionate about the work; two, you know, they really care; they're conservation focused, and and you know, three, like they're just great herpers, take great data, you know, can get anything done that needs done, and they're always there,
4: easily
2: count on. Well said, yeah.
4: See, we like to push back, you know, he says we do the hard work too, and I think Jim and I always say Josh does the hardest work. He has to write the proposals <laughs> and the reports and the he he has to do all the paperwork and we get to go do the fun stuff.
2: Yeah, and and, and the, to take this just a step to further uh, this is not on public land. Correct. This is a conservation project and a study project on privately owned land. Correct. And this land is, and it's not like it's owned by Joe Schmo. It's owned by a corporation and, the, the, they're dedicated to leaving this land intact as it is and allowing these, uh, critters to, to exist as they do. Correct. Um, and the, uh, the, I've been out there, I've helped a bit. I've been to this, this property a number of times. It's, uh, it's protected mm-hmm. video surveillance barbed wire fences. Guards, it's it's fairly secure, and there are researchers out there, A.K.A. <laughs> Jim and Don. There are researchers out there, and, and Josh. Every day, some of you guys are out there, not yeah. all of you guys. So, um, in the
3: times when the when the animals are active, we're there. Yeah, basically.
2: Yes, and I think uh, you correct me if I'm wrong. The folks at the company who are on site are also kind of committed to protecting. Uh, all the flora and fauna uh, yeah 100 percent. so
1: that's like you know the big reason why this project goes on is there is a uh, a group of experts that are on the preserve board and so they oversee a lot of the research that happens and so we're collecting a lot of data and they do a lot of on-site management and uh, use some of that data that we collect uh, to help inform their management recommendations so not only are we you know, we're, we're studying the animals. There's experts that are out there studying the plants. Um, we collaborate with Fish and Wildlife, with DNR, to do uh, burns. Uh, we're out there clearing the woody vegetation and uh, doing a variety of things while these corporations oversee uh, all of that. So they are very focused on the the conservation, the management of this particular
4: uh, piece of property.
2: Tell us about the habitat.
4: Well, so it's, it's currently a mixture of sand prairie with some dunes on it and some lowland floodplain forest. The forest kind of comes up the hills with the dunes. And uh, a lot of people describe it as this beautiful mixture of forest and sand prairie. Um, We've looked at the history of the property. You can look, Iowa has a a great resource called the Iowa map server. And I wish every state had this available for them. You can go back and look at aerial photos from the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, all through the decades. So we can go back and look at this property from the 1930s and see what, the, what it looked like in aerial photos then. And the trees are not there. I mean, there's there's a handful. It, it probably would have been more of an oak savanna around the edges of the wetlands and stuff like that. So nowhere near the canopy cover we have now. Uh, definitely not the cedar tree encroachment. Definitely not the locust coming in. Um, so and Those it, are it,
2: trees that come in when there's no fire. Right. Uh, the trees that come in and uh, establish themselves and then they're hard to get out. Correct. 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 So... It, it kind
4: of irks me a little bit when people describe it as this beautiful mixture of forest and sand prairie, when in reality, it should be majority sand prairie and probably savannah. You know, a, a couple small, you might have some small closed canopy areas, but nothing to the extent it is now. Uh, so it, it should be predominantly sand prairie. So. Okay.
2: And so you, you start out the project with the aim of uh, seeing what's going on with the the mud turtle. Correct and, uh, and uh, one
3: of the things though that we want I should probably mention is sure. the earliest days of this was replicating because studies have been going on here since the 70s. Yeah. The earliest portions of this of what we did was replicating the earlier studies to try to keep that same data going to you know replicate that data and to see what's changed since they you know stopped doing it and when we took it over. And then since then the focus has slowly shifted over time and we've done more and varying research that wasn't involved with the earlier stuff so just to make sure we get there we can talk later if we want Mm -hmm. about what things we've done differently but just you know to put that out there
2: okay and and so uh in terms of in terms of the data you're collecting on the on the turtles that you find and that sort of thing
3: well it it was originally we even ran the exact same drift fences in the exact same lengths in the exact same places oh wow to, Mm -hmm. to do that and then from there we've kind of changed it up and and started to trap in different areas to try to find different information instead of just expanding, you know, on the exact same data year after year.
1: So, yeah, the previous researchers, you know, they had started and had figured out that there was a substantial mud turtle population here. Uh, one of the few places in the state at that time in the 70s that mud turtles could still be found. And so um, when the companies had purchased that land to 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 use some of the other areas, you know, they set aside this preserve then. And as part of that, they were going to continue to manage to do this research. And so those researchers would be out there every three years to do these big drift fence surveys, looking at the population of mud turtles and then the bycatch and uh, seeing what's going on with the different uh, faunal communities And then, you know, they they start to notice that there is a crash with the mud turtle population, trying to figure that out. Uh, Like I said, the project kind of switched hands and... The other person then continued with the same methods, uh, to allow easy comparison. And then when we started in 2018, we're like, all right, let's start exactly how they did. So we know the data that we're finding has been replicated the same way so that the changes we see isn't because we're doing things different. It's because something's actually happened. And then as we get out there, you know, you have more questions and like, how can we answer these questions? What more can we do besides doing kind of what had happened? And so uh, we improved upon methods. We added additional things. Uh, sort of that iterative process. As we get more data, we see what might be an issue. We we try to to head it off as quickly quickly
2: as we can. So we're talking about uh, trying to collect turtles for data, you're using the the drift te- the drift fence technique, which is the long lines of uh, of fabric that are stretched between stakes, and then you have some not only just bucket traps but also uh, like a wire mesh, or like a minnow trap, I suppose you call them. Yeah, they yeah, are exactly, exactly minnow traps. traps. Yeah. Uh, not like a minnow trap, a minnow trap. <laughs> a minnow trap. Um, so, yeah, if I say it wrong, let me know. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, the, it, in order to catch the, the turtles, but those uh, that's a dry land. These are also turtles that spend time in the water. So, did you put traps in the water to try to catch them in, in the aquatic yeah, milieu so, too? So, we have...
4: We've done just plain aquatic traps that are out and baited, Uh, and then I also have, which I feel we we haven't used them in the last couple of years, we did them the first year and I had some success with them where uh, I essentially made an aquatic drift fence. So I I bought some like plastic garden mesh stuff. It's not real thin, so like turtles don't get stuck in it. And We basically put leader fences out into the water with the same aquatic traps on either end, Um, and I think we we got quite a few at the end of that first year in those traps, so... It
1: it was like one of those things where, you know, we started off doing these drift fences. We, We catch the first few mud turtles and we're like, there's a lot of acres of aquatic habitat. And we're like, we don't know where to even start running these. And sometimes the access is a lot more difficult. And so in 2018, one of the first things we wanted to do was put radio transmitters on the mud turtles to know exactly when and where they're going, what habitat Then we see that they're using the aquatic habitat during these dates. So we start to focus some time on the aquatic traps. Uh, We had some success and then there's, you know, we're, we're close to the river. So there's a lot of issues with flooding at times. So then it makes aquatic trapping difficult. Um, and there was a couple years we weren't out there as much, so we, we didn't have enough time to to run those aquatic traps. So hopefully this year we can get back to it because it had been a flood year, but the water levels are going down. We know where those those turtles are, and maybe we can hit those spots and, and catch more that way.
2: Okay. So how many turtles did you guys put transmitters on?
4: Total over the years? or Because we have 11 active turtles we're tracking right now for the mud turtles. Um, and we had, I think we had 11 that first year? Was it eleven? Yeah. Well, so we had Claudia, Lestat, Lestat, and Louis. All all of our mud turtles are named after vampires. And Louis, we lost a shed. Claudia and Lestat both died, but then that was Bella Lugosi, the Count. Uh, Wolf was first year. So uh, yeah, I'm, tr- I'm just trying to count in my head. I knew it was. He was about. Is about ten. Yeah, the first it was year. ten. Yeah. And then I think we lost every one of those to raccoon predation,
1: except for one. One disappeared. It shed the oh, transmitter, yeah. and so okay. we don't know.
2: Yeah. All so, right. and the transmitters are um, stuck to the shell with an epoxy, uh, stuck quite well. I, <laughs> I, I well. was there to witness you putting a transmitter <laughs> on a turtle. Um, that first year was quite yeah. excited to drive up. I think I like dropped everything and um, uh,
4: I called Mike the day we had our first two turtles, and he well, drove four well, hours from his house <laughs> to my house that
2: night to see them. Yeah, I told now I'm well. I'm going up to because I, I this is a turtle I wanted to see for a long time uh, in my. In my state, in Illinois, of course, mm. that's probably not going to happen because the populations there are in really bad shape. Yeah. And it's very difficult to to see them. There's no research project underway that would allow me to. Yeah.
4: I feel I need see. to jump in on this and explain this a little better to your audience. <laughs> <laughs> so the winter prior to me, Josh and Jim get involved in this. Josh had told me we were going to be doing it and that we'd be on site. And of course, I was ecstatic. Um, and so for those of you who don't know, Mike and I are two of the project admins of Hurt Mapper. Uh, So me, Mike, and Chris Smith were on a phone call regarding Hurt Mapper business, and I gave him an update. He's like, "Yeah, it's gonna be really cool this spring. I get to work with these mud turtles on this site in Iowa." And so Chris is like, "Oh, that's really cool." And Mike's line went dead, and like we're like, "Mike, are you there?" And we're just we're hearing nothing at all. Next
2: thing you know, there's knock on your door. (laughs) Yeah, but then then I I just start hearing this.
4: Don, Don. Don, Don like, yeah, Mike, can you hear us? We're, we're thinking his phone is losing the call, dropping the call. He's like, Don, Don, I'm like, yeah, Mike, I hear you, Mike. What do you, Don, you have to get me on that property to see those turtles. <laughs> so, so yeah, so we called him that very first day. We had two turtles. I unfortunately was not on site actually that day. They, they were dropped off to me to put transmitters on, and Mike drove to my house
3: to do a photo session with yeah. them and just see the turtles. Yeah. Don, uh, Don, Don, Don. <laughs> I think this is the 35th time I've heard that story. I know, I know, <laughs>
4: it's great. So I,
1: I think the bigger, like the bigger picture then to sort of explain your excitement and our excitement when we first see these mud turtles is that there used to be a pocket in Missouri, Iowa, and Illinois, right. uh, where these kind of ephemeral wetlands meet these sand prairie habitats similar to what you would see in Texas uh, in the De- Nebraska Sandhills, where there are large populations of yellow mud turtles. And then as time progressed, the Missouri population possibly has been extirpated, as far as we know. And then the ones in Illinois, uh, they had studied in the early
4: aughts-ish, late There late was these. one study in 2009, they did trapping, at least in Tazewell County.
1: And their numbers and the locations were very few and far between. Um, and a lot of that then gets... You know, farmed the wetlands get drained, and so then there's no habitat left. And then when you're talking about, you know, some of the other issues that we'll uh, probably touch on with predation and woody encroachment and stuff, then uh, these small populations of turtles end up getting uh, locally extirpated. And so that's why this one that has been preserved and set aside and doing all this management. Is hopeful, helpful to for kind of this Midwest population of uh, mud, yellow mud turtles.
4: Yeah. And, and I think to add to that. So as, as far as I'm aware, the people I know in Illinois, the people I've talked to in Missouri, we have the strongest population of them left, <laughs> which is sad because, Josh, how many do we think I, we have? You know,
1: we'd be lucky if we have 50 out there probably it's, it's difficult, you know, cause they're hard to catch sometimes, but it's, it's low. And at the, at the peak, they were estimating that there was over a thousand individuals. Uh, and then since late eighties, early nineties, they watched those numbers. They used to catch like 500 in a year, like 500 captures in a year to the point where, uh, the year prior to us taking over, they only caught one. Um, using the, those exact same methods that they were catching 500. And so at least with what we've been doing, we catch about a dozen a year. Um, and a lot of times they're new and there's been a lot of young ones. So recruitment still is occurring. So it's hopeful.
2: Well, this is probably a good time to, to talk about the, uh, predation and, and by predation, I'm talking about principally raccoons, um, I've talked to a number of people that do do turtle work here and there across various places. And it's always a problem. Raccoons are always a problem. They're out of control. And I I've heard a lot of people complain about them, but (laughs) what I've never really heard until I I got tangentially um, involved with this project, I never heard people saying, well, we tried to fix this by doing this and trapping or shooting or whatever. You guys have a raccoon mitigation project. You uh, are doing your best to trap, and uh, I'll just say dispatch raccoons.
4: I I like that he's calling it a raccoon mitigation project. (laughs) That's
3: good. I've never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I'm going to get raccoon mitigation officer T-shirts made.
2: (laughs) I,
1: you know, like uh, so to kind of to touch on that. When we started 2018, we again we were trying to replicate everything that had done, and in the past couple of times, and it was every three years, they would hire a trapper to take 20. And so, you know, I contacted this guy to to do it again, and we had never had any connection or anything, and uh, supposedly he had and did and, you know, onwards. But then, you know, if you wait another three years, who knows what that population of raccoons would be, it could explode. And so, it got to the point where we were watching those 10 turtles that we tracked all get predated and it was, it was depressing and we're like, we need to do something immediately. Otherwise we're going to watch the last like Midwest population of mud turtles be extirpated. So then uh we got the permission to take it into our own hands and do as much trapping as we could out of season and uh, mitigate our, our raccoon problem. And then Almost immediately, I feel like we we noticed there was a positive impact to that. You don't see that adult uh, predation. Um, you see far fewer uh, nests of the uh, the uh, turtle nests getting predated as well.
3: I mean, in the in 2018, we would walk our fence, and we would see turtle nests every 15, 20 feet that had been dug up by raccoons. I mean, and they weren't all mud turtles obviously it was sliders and map turtles and snapping turtle eggs but still constantly and now we're like oh wow there's a nest that's been predated it's like surprising to see one i just say, we were shocked to find a snapping turtle nest today (laughs) instead of like oh there's one oh there's one oh there's one like it used to be so we know it's i know it's not we're you know we're not documenting them but it's anecdotal but still
2: it's so how many, uh, you got, you guys use, uh, leg traps and you use, uh, other, other, traps?
3: we use, uh, foothold traps, the dog proof foothold traps along the water's edge to try to prevent capturing any other animals like, like possums and whatnot. And then we use live traps, um, away from the water where we end up catching a, a lot more bycatch that we can then release. We
4: got a baby, we or get a mama possum. And I think it's the same one every <laughs> single spring. I think she's mad at us this year for not giving her cat food because <laughs> we haven't been baiting the live traps for her. But she still walked into it a couple times this yeah, year. She's
3: walked into an empty live trap with no bait in them. And we'll, we'll open the door and they'll just sit there. They won't even leave the trap sometimes. Funny.
4: um I, I want to just comment too. The the whole number of raccoons that were paid to be released. So one one of the higher ups, one of the executives at the companies, we were out on a, a field trip walk, and I don't I don't remember if it was a school field trip or with the general public. And he asks me, and he goes, "So, so Don, where'd you guys come up with this number of raccoons to be taken each time?" And I go, "What are you talking about? We didn't come up with that number. We were told that was the number we were allowed to, to get, get taken." He's like, mm-hmm. "What?" He's like, "We thought you guys came up with this number. Like this was part of some plan." I don't think anyone actually knows where this no. number came from anymore, but it's just what yeah. was done year to year to year. I, to, think you know.
3: it, I think it was a limitation on how much money they wanted to give a trapper. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. I yeah. think they were paying by the raccoon. And I think they were like, this is all we want to spend on this, basically. Yeah. So and, we, and then when we came in and said, well, you don't have to pay us extra. We'll just take <laughs> care
1: of it. Yeah, we're tra- We're checking our other traps. Yeah, anyways. we're it's, here
3: every day. It's yeah. not that hard to walk and look at them. Uh. Then we were given just carte blanche to to do whatever was necessary.
4: Yeah, they, they think it was it was out of our budget. So the the thousand dollars for the trapper came out of our budget. And we go, you know, we can buy a lot of traps for a thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so you guys started you guys start trapping. How many how many, per season, how many coons are you taking? And uh,
1: uh, the first year, so forty four. Yeah, we did twenty twenty one was our first year. Uh and it was it was pretty we, we hit it kind of hard, but yeah, 40, 44 in a, about a, month-ish, yeah. a month ish. Yeah. and a half. And then we see the next year, we did almost exactly the same uh, level of effort, and then that number dropped to 30... 39. 39. That, yeah. And then so far this year, we're at 15, but we're just starting to enter into turtle nesting season, where we typically see a little bit of a bump, but I don't know if we've seen that bump. We get about one every couple of days now, whereas before, we would get like... F-
4: four in a day, five in a day. You'd get packs running down the bank of the pond and you'd catch them trap, trap, trap as yeah. they go down the
3: line and leave their friends behind. And we rarely see raccoon droppings yeah. anymore around the preserve. Yeah. And we all rarely see trap uh, tracks along the water's edge. Yeah.
4: And, and I guess if, if anyone's listening to this and wants... Uh, some better plans. And so they initially wanted to give us permission to trap like in fur bearing season. And we're like, well, that, that doesn't work. We one, we don't want to be on the winter, but um, the, I always forget what APHIS stands for. There's the APHIS division of fish and wildlife service, and there was a study they were doing, I think it was on predation of sea turtle nests mm-hmm. a, a while back, and they found that raccoons will converge on communal turtle nesting sites from like miles around, yeah. up, up to five or six miles. So all the raccoons in a five or six mile area may come to a communal turtle nesting area. So when we focus our trapping efforts during this turtle nesting season, we're not just taking out the, we, we, What I think on an average population density, there should be 40 that live on the preserve if you're going by 19 per square kilometers, the rough average i mean it's that's just a, a, an estimate there but we're taking out more than that and we're taking out those ones who are coming in from five miles away to come get the free smorgasbord of turtle eggs and we're knocking them out as they come in now
2: yeah okay so maybe you've turned the corner on it but you guys and, and again this is anecdotal da- data you guys feel like you've noticed a difference in what's happening with the, the mud turtles and other herbs. Yeah, so it, at least it,
1: some of it's anecdotal where we ha- like we know the number of mud turtles that we're tracking. And so that first year we documented uh, it was 80, 90% predation that we're almost certain was all raccoons on the adults. And we have, you know, knock on wood, we haven't seen that since we've started the, the, the trap in. So there were solid numbers there. Uh, we started marking turtle nests so that we would know how many known nests there were and how many of those got predated. And our predation rates of those known nests dropped to, I think it was 0% last year. And granted, like like you saw today, there are still nests out there that we didn't know were there that the raccoons do end up finding as well. So predation still occurring, but like Jim had said, you don't see the numbers that we had before. Like it was insane how many uh, predated nests we had find, And then even uh, that first year we saw a lot of, uh, predated adult map turtles and sliders up on land, which typically you don't see unless the females are coming up to nest, and a raccoon or something like that is is getting them.
4: Yeah, and we, we the, haven't seen that in yeah. the first year. I remember standing on top of one of the tallest dunes, and you could point out and go, "There's a predated nest. There's a predated <laughs> yeah. nest. There's a predated nest. There's a, you know," and you could count them from yeah. the top of one of the dunes, and you can't see that now.
2: Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I want to commend you guys for taking action. You could have just wrung your hands and, you know, went, oh, this is terrible. Goodbye turtles. <laughs> but you guys did something.
3: See, um, we have an advantage though, and working on a private preserve, we don't have to worry about the public walking out there and seeing a raccoon stuck in a trap. It's really difficult to manage public property the way we can manage private property. Yeah. I, I you I know, that. Joe Schmo walking up and seeing a raccoon in a trap is Oh my God, a cute, cuddly animal! Mm-hmm. Oh no, what are we going to do? Right. Where you know we don't we don't have to deal with that.
2: Yeah, even though the and the, the, the raccoons are dispatched in a, a humane humane mm-hmm. fashion, but on public lands, that's you know people have a say and people mm-hmm, get yep. upset about that. Uh, there's people that are pro animal, even if they're the wrong animals, mm-hmm, yep. or they're animals that are da- damaging to the environment. And we all know that cats <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh uh, lord uh, that's yeah that's so, gonna be trouble oh tnr programs don't work <laughs> <laughs>
4: you're
2: gonna have to probably <laughs> you edit that, that all out the cat people out there but that's true i mean that's you know i mean if it's if it's not, if you're a champion of the cuddly and the furry uh sometimes those animals are putting other animals out of business and sometimes you can't let that happen
4: i mean it, it it's kind of jokingly but i blame disney you know you a lion a meerkat and a warthog don't live together in africa right <laughs> they don't sing songs under the stars and lay there talking about what the planets are the lion is going to eat the meerkat yeah, and the and warthog yeah <laughs> you know so that's yeah. th- th- that's not the world we live in unfortunately it is not a disney story uh, nature is cruel and stuff gets out of balance well, and out when of whack. i was a young warthog <laughs> 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 things are different right You you know,
1: I I would like to add, though, that as you say, you guys didn't just wring our hands like that's the thing that works well with this group is how much we care that. Yeah, we're stoked to see a a hognose, Western hognose, catch one to handle one, get good photos. But there's that connection to these herps, these species in hopes of. The preservation, the conservation. And so it's like, here, we have this opportunity. We're here. We keep asking, what more can we do? We want to do all that we can, like, what are our limitations because we're going to be out here. And so we keep kind of doing a little bit more and then tying into that, that, uh, raccoon removal. I think another big component of this project is the education standpoint. So, uh, Don and Jim work a lot with, uh, the school groups, the local school groups, so the the companies will bring out these tours. Uh, they bring out a whole lot of different people, a lot of you know fourth graders uh, on up to high schoolers can come out and see the work that we're doing, see a box turtle, see a snake, see the research that we're doing, see why we're trapping raccoons. And, and these guys can explain it in a way that makes it interesting to a fourth grader. They, they get this better connection to nature. And then hopefully, you know, one of them will remember that down the road and really connect to that and see the importance of some of this stuff, because, you know, these guys are fun to hang out with when they're out there. So they make it a good time.
4: It it was fun too. The, the, uh, there, there was a, a a meeting with some higher up people in one of the one of the uh, companies, and there was someone who asked like, "Why are we dumping all this money in this preserve?" And of course, the people we liaise with, who who kind of handle all the natural areas of stuff, asked me. He goes, "I need every picture of kids you have on the, on the preserve right now." <laughs> yeah. So we sent. We have picture. We'll hand them our telemetry. unit, and be like, yeah. "Here's how you work, guys: loudest beep, follow loudest beep, and we'll send them off with our with our high dollar equipment out into the prairie." You know. And we have pictures of all this. Uh-huh. And so, of course, our, our liaison, he goes, this is why, you know, and of course, I'm doing motions with my hand slapping out cards on the table. Like, this is why we put all this money into this, you know? And they're like, okay, they get it, you know? They get it. Yeah.
1: So I, I think there's, there's hundreds of kids that come out every year and get a tour. And before, you know, like, they would get a tour and they'd see a cactus and they would see, you know, some of the sand prairie and the dunes. But because of the work simultaneously. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Because of the simultaneous work that we have going on and these guys' interest, uh, how much these guys care, they want to make sure that those kids get a great hands-on experience and a fun time and and make that connection.
4: We we had earlier just this year, we had junior high group and Josh and Jim were on site and not with me. They were off doing the work, work part while I was on the field trip. And uh, I, I gave the kids a hint. I was like, who wants to still find a box turtle? And they all were like, okay, I was like, okay here's what you're going to do. Run off into this edge of this tree line and see who can find me the first box turtle. And it it didn't take even a minute. I hear, got a box turtle. Mm -hmm. And I went over to try to get it to work it up. As I'm hearing from the other side of the field, we got one too. It's like, okay guys, we'll bring them to in the middle. I sat down in the middle of this field and these junior high kids in the course of like 20, 30 minutes brought me 15 box turtles. And they were loving it. And then they would just drop it off to me and go back for more. And luckily it was a small enough area where we weren't like relocating them too far. But uh, they were just loving this idea that they're finding box turtles. And a couple of them we had never seen before. You know, and they get a huge kick out of that.
2: It's kind of like Pokemon Go. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I I really think. It's a quest. Yeah. 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 There's also some, uh, you guys have done some uh, other mitigation work uh, with the uh, cutting back cedars (laughs) and uh, locust trees to sort of open up some dune areas, which is, you guys have not done a, a large area, but you have done a significant bit of this. And I want to say that that's a lot of hard work. You have to I, cut all good. those trees down and then you have to drag them away so that you can <laughs> open up the area.
3: You yeah, have to treat this to do all the stump treatment as yeah. well on this on yeah, the locusts.
2: Yeah. Just treat them so th- they don't grow back. And so there's just a an actually
3: high. I don't I think you're underestimating how that's large of I was an area gonna say. we did. Well it was so, pretty big. You've got are, numbers, oh don't yeah. you? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's numbers. even
4: just the locust. And so so Jim and I have done these restoration well, these tree removal projects in the past. I dragged him into one with me up at uh in, in, Lynn in, in Lynn County outside of Cedar and Rapids. And then I dragged
3: him into one in Jackson County.
4: In Jackson County on some timber rattlesnake stuff. So. You guys
2: are old hands at, re, at removing... Uh, <laughs> killing, tr- killing trees. Basically taking the place of fire. Well, and what that's doing.
4: that's the thing. is. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of anti-cedar tree at this point to the point where there are days where we're just walking around the preserve carrying loppers with us, whether we're on a field trip or if it's a cooler day. And we just have hand loppers with us. See a little 18-inch cedar tree? Bye. And so there's just dead brown cedar trees lying out in the prairie all over the place. And so we... We've been on the board's case to like try to do some of this and they and they have. I'm not trying to say they were ignoring the tree removal. I want to make sure to emphasize that they weren't, they weren't ignoring the problem. But it's it's difficult, especially with COVID was going on. It's hard to get crews in there to get stuff done. And so we were kind of, we can do some of this. Mm -hmm. And so um, this isn't a secret to them if one is listening. We we kind of made our doorway into that. Mm -hmm. We've tried to tell them we've done this before. We do tree removal, we have chainsaws, brush cutters, this and that, we've done it all. And, um, so they, they had, they had a locust removal area where one of our mud turtles is overwintering and their plan was to bring heavy equipment out in the winter mm-hmm. time. And, and I was like, listen, guys, the dune doesn't freeze solid. I don't think we should do this. How about we clear the dune and then you guys can do whatever you want for the rest.
2: The dune doesn't freeze solid. So you might crush the turtle.
4: Right. You equipment. scrape the sand down, do something. Maybe it'd cause issues. Now I'll even hundred percent admit, I don't know how big of a worry that could actually be. But it was a concern, right? Like maybe I'm a little too concerned, but it it was a concern. So we said we'd clear the dune. Well, the dune was a quarter acre. We just kept going and we cleared four and a half (laughs) with hand loppers and bingo daubers to treat these little (laughs) stumps. Uh, we did drag in some friends, so uh, shout out to Jeff Faircloth and May if they're uh, and Laura, and Laura, well, sure, I, you know Jim's wife, wife, wife. and uh, Nathan Barnett came out and helped us, yeah. and uh, Jonathan. Jonathan. Uh, yeah. So if you guys end up listening to this, thank you very much for yeah, help with for the tree sure. removal,
3: especially the swamping of them.
4: Yeah, especially <laughs> the swamping of them. Uh, and so from there, it was actually weird. So we they they had a guy out from another company. Uh, and they were like, who were supposed to make the plan to do the tree removal. And so we all went out one day with, with him too, and me and Jim and, and the people from the board. And we were like looking over what needs to be done. And we thought we were stepping into his business. Like, oh, we did some tree removal and this is his gig and he's supposed to be doing this. And I don't remember what he finally said. And I go, whoa, 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 stop, yeah, stop. He didn't stop.
3: talk a lot. He didn't talk all a the-
4: lot. And he finally said something, I go, wait, wait, we were under the impression we were stepping on your toes here. Like we're taking work from you. He's like, oh no, I love what you guys are doing. (laughs) This is great. And we're like, okay, so we got this then. (laughs) So, so in order to, uh, continue being out on site every year, the research grant was only given every three years normally. So we, to just to make sure we could be on site to do the raccoon removal and other things and get extra research, we tapped into the management budget by agreeing to do tree removal as well now too. So our funding right now for this year is mostly from tree removal I don't know, a big portion of it. Um and that keeps us out there doing the raccoon removal too. So it's kind of a you know more bang for their buck with it.
2: Okay. And I, I want to point out too I mean you guys you guys get paid for your work. I mean but you're not supporting your families Lord no <laughs> no Lord no this.
3: I drive yeah. an hour and a half each way yeah. to come down and work. Every day, five to six days a week. I'm spending three hours in the car to spend four hours at the preserve. Yeah. So that I I'm getting gas money and if I had a, and trip, a bowling
2: trophy right now, I'd give it to you. Yeah, yeah. I would I would and take it.
3: <laughs> again,
1: that's why I, I say how lucky it was that it's all worked out because of these guys' passion and commitment. You know, it's pennies for the work. Like when I look at some of those, the tree, like the hard labor of digging pitfalls anybody that's known that has done that like it's basically the three of us that dug kilometers of fence you know every couple of years and then you start compounding that with that tree removal and like he said dragging those trees uh to get them to a location that is is suitable and not impact the other uh wildlife or or uh sensitive plant species there like it yes they need numerous bowling trophies on over <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think it's it's fabulous, um, and I I've known you guys from your early tree tree lopping days. You've done great work across the state for various projects, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just uh, it it is that willingness to to serve. It's that willingness to give your time and your effort and your energy. So maybe you guys are set up and poised to help the the mud turtles recover on this property. I think we
4: we decided we went from documenting their decline to actually working on a recovery effort.
3: I was the one that was like the most (laughs) pessimistic about it. I'm not going to lie because I I was positive we were watching them go away. Yeah, Just positive because like the first, like we said, the first year, every single turtle, every single mud turtle we put a radio on. Was predated mm-hmm. and i'm like there's no way how can that possibly be sustained mm-hmm. and we're talking head starting i'm like well that's just gonna make bigger turtles for the raccoons to kill mm-hmm. yeah. you know we can grow babies up bigger just so it's bigger food items for them mm-hmm. so i was like depressed there's no way and then i then they said well you can kill as many rakens as you want i'm like okay well maybe we're not now rakin Whoops, I said rakins, didn't I? Raccoons. Oh, uh-huh. uh, you can kill like, Trailer Park Boys reference if you're paying attention. <laughs> um, but yeah, we when I when I found out we can kill as many raccoons as we thought was necessary, then I would that changed my whole attitude towards where okay. we were headed with all this. So
2: you felt like you could do something.
3: Yeah, maybe we can fix this, yeah,
1: which I think is a, a great piece of this project being on like a private preserve and everybody being very open to uh, the collaboration, the connection, the management, you know, the research. It's like, you know, you can do research for research's sake. And it's great. Like a lot of that data is very important. But then we see these things firsthand that then we can immediately go, there's a problem. These raccoons are a problem. And they're like, well, what can we do to fix it? And you're like, jim's trapped you know pretty much all his life for raccoons like he knows exactly what to do and as long as you give us permission we'll we'll follow all the the dnr protocols and take care of it and then we see the locusts moving in because they hadn't been able to burn for six years on site and it's like you just give us a little extra gas money and some some uh, money to buy lunch and some water we'll get out there and we'll do it because because we really care and we want to And, and we want to feel like we're, we're doing more than just doing research for, for research's sake.
2: Okay. So you guys are feeling pretty good now about maybe turning the corner on, (laughs) on. I wouldn't say pretty
4: good. I'm feeling better about the outlook. Okay. I, I, yeah. that's relative.
1: I you know I think there is a lot of data that we're trying to cuz we see it firsthand and you talk about the anecdotal piece of it and it's like yes there there is a lot of things that are positive a lot of things that are good but I think we've been working hard with all of this data that we've collected that it'll be great to add that component also to see that hey we've caught x amount of hognose western hognose snakes in these areas that we we cleared all of those uh, locust trees. There's all these other locust trees, guys. Like, can we cut those out? Because look, these important species are using those areas that we clear, whereas before
4: they weren't. One of my favorite things that I ever heard come out of Jim's mouth. So I'm Uh the guy who volunteers for the biggest things ever. I don't care what the task is. Like, we can do this. And these two have to always kind of keep me in check. No, Don, we can't. Or Don, we at least need gas money or something. And so that day we were out with the guy we were talking and one of the other, the, the other girls involved, she's like, well, we don't want you. We don't want to ask you guys to do anything that, that you don't think you can do. And I was about to open my mouth and I was shocked when Jim spoke up before me. He goes, there's not a tree on this preserve that we can't handle. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's we're true. in for this. We're doing this.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's uh, change the course a little bit. Talk about the bycatch. Mm. Uh, because you're finding uh, the, the you, know, you have your pit traps to, to mm-hmm catch and identify uh the, the illinois not the illinois the <laughs> mud turtle the island <laughs> of illinois mud turtle <laughs> um, spooner eye forever Spooneri. man <laughs> that's forever. another t-shirt idea <laughs> spooner eye forever i'll buy one
3: i'll sell you one
2: <laughs> and i'll uh, spend the guys, money they're on brown. killing trees they're not yellow they're brown um many of those trees were my friends <laughs> um so the bycatch uh there's other things that, that show up in the in the drip fences and then the traps uh, including ornate box turtles, mm-hmm. uh, and Western hognose and, uh, six line race runners and frogs and toads and other turtles.
4: Oh, and I know this is a herp centric thing kind of, well, not, you don't really get too always so herp focused, but, uh, leashed shrews, plains pocket mice, meadow, jump. you know, we, we have some small mammals we keep tabs on as well. And some bugs. And some oh, bugs. Yeah, yeah. We have discovered a beetle that had never been found in the state before. Thank yeah. you very much. Right. Then it turned out it had been found one other time. <laughs>
2: So there's a bunch of stuff going on here, but you also taken the advantage of the opportunity to collect data on some of these other animals, including the ornate box turtle and the Western hognose. So let's talk about that a little bit, what you're doing with that, because uh, much of what we did today, uh, we did not see a mud turtle today. (laughs) Uh, Most of our time today was spent uh, taking data on Western hognose snakes and ornate box turtle.
1: Yeah. So I, I guess I'll, I'll, Talk about the other stuff if you guys want to talk about the snakes, but uh, you know they they the uh, Don had mentioned the leaf shrews, the pocket mouse; those are uh, state listed species that, as far as we know, have very rarely been documented outside of this preserve. And so, like the mud turtle, this this uh, habitat becomes extremely important for them, and nobody really does any research on small, small mammals like that. It's, it's very rare. And so because we're out there every day, because we're collecting a lot of, uh, we, we have a lot of traps out there, we collect a lot of these. And so the hope is that we might as well take that extra 30 seconds, um, collect a bit of data on some of those small mammals so that when somebody has some time or we want to focus and look at uh, the uh, populations of the pocket mice and how they might change depending on environmental conditions and how that might be important uh, to conserve that species too, we have all of that stuff because we're, we're catching those in in those traps that we do.
2: So you have other people in the state interested in your work, the work you're doing with these, these rodents?
1: potentially we we you know we haven't yet and the hope is that eventually we might be able to do expand but there's only three of us there's only so much you can do and you know we started focus on the muds and then the hognose and the box turtles and so that data thousands and thousands of captures of that data sitting there that someday hopefully somebody can do that hopefully sooner than later and looking at interesting population trends of of some of these other Uh, state-listed species that aren't herps.
4: Yeah, I had, I think it was last year, uh, one of the county girls think I developed a foot fetish for voles.
0: Uh,
4: (laughs) I found out, so we have have two species of voles. Yeah, we have the meadow vole and the prairie vole. And so they posted a picture of a bullfrog with a foot of something sticking out of its mouth. And, uh, they, I forgot what all they said. It might have been some kind like of a rat little, or something. It was a little
1: bit of a tail too. It's yeah, foot and yeah. tail.
4: And and she, they're telling me, I go, guys, that's a vole foot. And they're like, what? I was like, I know a vole foot when I see a vole foot. That's a vole foot. And I was like, look, because here's a picture of a prairie vole. Here. she goes, Don. Why do you have vole feet pictures? I'm just on the ready like this was like i've got 300 <laughs> pictures of old feet from this year because i yeah. found out that that we can't tell them apart. josh josh i think can do an okay job telling the voles apart visually there's a little differences in their colors i was counting foot pads and so i was scruffing every single one last year and taking pictures of the foot pads and then, but it does it's it's like it's an interesting study to see how many are prairie voles how many are mm-hmm. meadow voles they're, they're not listed or anything but it's still an interesting thing of data but yeah when you start working up A bunch of box turtles and race runners and racers. I can't stop and scruff every single vole we get in a bucket and take a picture of its feet. You know, last year I don't know why I felt I had time to do it, but I I managed to last year. But it's it's not something that we can necessarily also work into. I didn't do any. (laughs) No, he didn't (laughs) do it.
1: I didn't do
3: any of that.
4: But none.
1: Then you know these guys, I guess probably grew up more interested in snakes, and so we also have this opportunity where it's pretty much the only place in the state that Western hognose exist. And as part of our bycatch, you know, we start catching a lot of snakes. Uh, There's that interest that we have personally. And so then now we've been able to kind of expand and really start to pay attention to that. And like you got to witness today, we had some exciting finds.
4: For sure. Yeah. For the record, if you had ever told Jim and I that we'd get one day to go out and herp this place, with and find a hognose snake we'd have both been ecstatic our lives would have been made which is why and i was going to say this earlier too when josh was saying how we got involved so I think the initial plan was Josh and I were going to do a lot of it until he got his doctorate offer. And then Jim was going to like help on weekends. But Josh asked me because we worked on other projects and as the program, I do the data collection tools and stuff like that. I think that's why Josh and I are friends. And uh, I, I told the Josh, only reason. Yeah. I told Josh flat out, I go, you know, if we don't get Jim involved in this, he's going to kill me.
0: So, <laughs> I would have too. I would. So,
4: so I was like, he had to at least be able to help for weekends. And yeah. So when Josh got the, the doctorate position or the PhD position, and then we got to do more of it and, it, it just, and then I quit my job. Then he quit his job. it's, it's It's been, I almost feel bad for the kids, the guys who go to school for years and years and years and don't get to do this amazing stuff, but it's because they can't make a living at it. Like we said, there's
3: not a lot of like Holy grail places in Iowa to herp, you know, maybe Madison County for the timber rattlesnakes. And there there's just not a lot, you know, what else can you name? But this is one because you've always, everybody in Iowa knows there's this place in Southeast Iowa someplace that that's got these amazing animals but but you don't get to go there nobody gets to go there suddenly i got to go there you know and, and i'm not gonna lie that was a big part of all this is like i've always wanted to set foot on this place and you know now we get to go do all this work with you and, know these
1: great and again creators to, to give these guys praise, I was like, you know, we can split it up and do X, Y, Z. And then Jim's like, well, I'm not not going to go if I can, because I don't want to miss out on something. And Don's like, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to stay home if somebody's finding great stuff. So like I try to keep them away so that they're not overworked and they're like, no, we're going to be out there. I'm like, all right.
3: Yeah, I go every day just because I don't want Don to find something cool <laughs> when I'm not there. Oh, no,
4: I, again, so we've been hitting this a lot. We have what we call the Daily Double, which is getting an Eastern and Western hognose snake on the same day, which, by the way, today we nailed and got both in a trap. The Daily today extravaganza.
3: extravaganza.
4: What was real funny, though, which is...
3: The what? Extra- Wh- the Extravaganza is capturing an oh. Eastern hognose snake and a Western hognose snake in the same trap. One one minnow
4: trap, both snakes. Got Done. that today, first time ever. So the first time Josh and I, 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 my
2: mic <laughs> I just true. got
4: them on the same day. Like that was our goal for a while: is to get both species on the same day on the site. And Josh and I did it on a day Jim wasn't there, and he was upset but the reason Jim wasn't there he was so cuz he was busy finding massasagas <laughs> on uh, yeah,
3: on a different survey project yeah
4: on a different project but it was still that where he it, Poor Jim. we have terrible. that much of an terrible. attachment to this site that he would have rather been there to get both these species in the day that day than off oh, finding those stupid massasagas
1: which <laughs> again this this project then it works out great where we're stoked to find you the know, daily double extravaganza but we're also collecting a bunch of data with these hognose snakes that not a lot of people do. Uh, we've been pit tagging them. We're taking measurements. Um, we've been kind of looking at some of the, the sort of course movement data, looking at survival rates of these because we're getting a lot of these recaptures. Uh, and these guys, you know, again, their passion to get out there and, and search around, even though we just caught five, we'd catch five more tomorrow. We're excited, but we get three recaptures, which then we're immediately in the field, like where, where was this one last caught? Like, how big was it? How much did it weigh? And then uh, it uh, regurgitates eggs. And we're like, Oh, you know, this is cool. We got (laughs) regurgitated eggs all over my pants. But you know, this is uh, something something new that we've observed that we see. And so that we're hoping that with all of this data that we've collected, if we can't use something with it, eventually somebody might be able to find something interesting and talk about the conservation of the species. What are these important habitats? Where are they moving? Moving, when are they moving what are they doing what are their growth rates what is uh, their survival rates how long are they living all of all of those things that if we spend that extra 30 seconds collecting that additional data that it's sitting there eventually for either us to use or hopefully somebody else can can find value in 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 those data points real quick
4: well, so Josh Josh has doing a really good job of patting Jim and I on the back and I, I think he needs to <laughs> kind of hype himself up a little more here too because he's telling you about all this stuff that Jim and I are out and we're doing this hard work and collecting data and we're and all this value Josh Josh is what gives all this data value. Josh is who, we go out and we catch turtles. Josh all the time tells us, oh, he's, he feels bad we're doing the hard work. And we're, again, we're laughing because he's doing all the paperwork, right? We're like, wait, we're, we're catching snakes, man, and turtles and you're writing reports and, and grant proposals. But the fact is, is like, we can go out and find as much as we want and and Jim and I do come up with questions. We we come up with stuff we want to look at. We see these trends, but it's it's Josh who actually can ultimately find that data and say, this is the value in that data we have. And that's not that one, it motivates Jim and I too. So Josh goes, Oh my God, did you guys notice this trend you have? Or he'll point out the whole, oh yeah, you have almost 350 captures of turtles this year. And we're like, Oh god, we're doing good, you know. Mm. But he wraps it up in a basket, puts a bow on at the hand of the preserves board who manages the place. He does a DNR. He he finds more stuff for us to look into. Um I think we said earlier too, like it's every every answer we get we find a new question. And and Josh is a big part of that. He's like, oh, what's the trend going on here? And we'll have it. I mean, he'll he'll call me at random and he and I go back and forth on the phone for like an hour, just about, what about if the turtles are doing this? What if they're doing this? Well, how come they're doing that? Well, I don't know. But look at the data we have. And we're like pulling stuff out of spreadsheets and databases. Winter time is really nuts for that when we're all stuck inside mm-hmm. and the amount of stuff you go pouring over your data and try to find. But that's, Josh is, is, is kind of not giving himself enough credit on that stuff. One other so, thing
3: to add to that too is that, you know, Don and I come up with ideas of things to do to add to the project or new things, new ways to approach things, and Josh has never been one to shut any of that down. It would be real easy to go, hey, I'm the boss, and this is how we're going to do stuff, but Josh has always been super open to whatever we try to bring to the table, and uh, that's added a lot to you know, for our enjoyment of the project and to for the the scope of the project as well. Yeah,
4: like just the other day, we told him we wanted the pit tag race. He's like, "Oh, that's great! You guys just start weighing and measuring <laughs> and everything." We're never mind. We don't want to pit tag racers.
2: <laughs> a <laughs> lot of racers on that property. Yeah, there a lot is. of racers.
3: But we might start pit tagging eastern hog Nose <laughs> yeah. and bull snakes, possibly. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, yeah. we
2: got to talk about the box turtles. Oh, yes. turtles. I love box turtles uh, because um, the majority of what we did today was box turtle work. Uh-huh. Uh, radio tracking some of the box turtles that you have transferred. On which is not many at this point, but you do that. But you're using um, the drift fences to and the minnow traps and the uh, box traps and other things to uh, visual surveying as visual well. Visual surveying as well to um, collect data on these box turtles. Uh, and you are not putting pit tags in the box turtles. You are using the old-timey, <laughs> tried and true method of notching shells, and you notch each per- each turtle gets a particular. Uh, shell notch pattern on their marginal scutes so that the, each one is different and unique. And so uh, you guys uh, have been able to uh, mark a lot of turtles. A lot of turtles. Recapture a lot of turtles. A lot of recaps. But you recaps and new caps, right? Yeah. You still get a significant number of new captures even after uh, all this time. You're still finding new turtles out there. That's pretty amazing.
3: New turtles in spots we've surveyed the living crap out of too. Not <laughs> yeah. just like new turtles. Oh, we've never been over here. And oh, here's a new turtle. It's like we've walked here 8 million times and here's a new turtle.
1: Maybe not 8 million, but literally
4: 250
1: okay. times.
3: Yeah. It's more like 7,650,000 <laughs> something.
2: Yeah. Plus or.
1: Right. Yeah, so the, the box turtles, you know, is is a very interesting one, the, a very interesting bycatch, I think, because as you say, you're kind of joking about the old-timey mark method, but those old-timey mark methods work because we are recatching some of those turtles that the original researchers had marked in the late
2: 70s, early 80s,
1: which is insane.
2: That's another thing that um, really drove some things home for me mm-hmm. because you are capturing turtles that were captured in the 70s. Mm-hmm. As adults. As as adults in the 70s. They have not appreciably grown Mm -hmm. much, but they're still around. They've been here Mm -hmm. for 50 years. 40 years? I can't do
3: that. 50. 50 years. And they could have been 20, 30 years old at the time they were originally
2: captured. Yeah. And so you guys are all, this is, this is led. they were here when the habitat, which much different Uh before the tree encroachment, uh, some of them still inhabit, areas in what are now woods uh-huh. that are sand dunes that are sand blows or whatever you call them that are now in inside of woods <laughs> it's covered with trees but those turtles predate those trees being there mm-hmm. which is interesting too but it, it kind of gets you to thinking about uh if you don't have roads if you don't have stupid humans trying to sell these things to pet shops or overseas or whatever mm-hmm. the poachers and all that nonsense if you don't have those pressures on these animals they can live an incredibly long time. You're yeah. not seeing much mortality among these no. these turtles.
1: I think I think we had talked about it in the woods there that once we start plugging the numbers in, you're probably going to see a 99.8 percent annual survival on those adults because we. So I, I I've done some coarse crunching numbers and I looked at some of the early '90s stuff because they were catching about a hundred turtles a year then, and in the early '90s, so '90, '91, '93, 1990, we have captured uh, a third of those individuals. We've recaptured a third of those individuals. So they're presumably the others are still out there. And because the detectability is low and, um, you know, like, like Jim had said, we surveyed one area 250 times and see this turtle for the first time that those others are out there really showing that these animals are surviving uh, for quite some time without all that human pressure.
2: I also want to talk for a second about the idea these turtles at 50 years you know they're at least 50 years old and you start looking at them and and start you you can't tell how old they are by counting the rings That's sort of a doesn't work <laughs> but you're getting an idea of how old a turtle is by wear patterns on the scutes and so you guys have sort of developed i want to call it a gestalt feeling <laughs> for how old turtles are and you're usually close uh-huh. because y- you had this data that's been collected for 50 years, so it's it gives you an, a better. You're on the shoulders of uh, standing on the shoulders of other people who did work, the boring work of collecting data on all these things, and it pays off. And it really it could really pay off here, and it'd be crucial in terms of understanding what's what's happened to these turtles or how these turtles have adapted uh, over time, and what what a 50 year old turtle looks like. Uh, a turtle the size of a baseball can be fifty years old yeah um it, it's uh it's amazing to me because i I look at the turtles I think oh, that's probably maybe, maybe that one's ten years old yeah maybe yeah. that one's twenty right. no no, that turtle is 70. 70 years old yeah um
3: Lord knows how old the oldest turtles out there might be yeah was, we we've we
2: got f- one not
4: too far back that like you couldn't see any growth rings on anymore on yeah. the top they were completely worn it was like, worn, it it was was compl-
3: like a smooth run. shell. yeah you know that thing was probably a hundred yeah Yeah.
4: Which I I
1: don't know how that sort of came about sort of naturally. Like as Don says, we're out there, we we come up with these other ideas, these questions. And I, I think there was, you know, I was looking at some of the recaps and I was like, okay, I know this turtle was caught in 1993. The researchers prior had estimated it to have 20 growth rings. And so, you know, we know what 20 growth rings looks like. And I know it was caught in 1993 and now 2023, 30 years later, I send on a picture and I'm like, Hey, how old do you think this turtle is? You know, after seeing so many of these and and getting a feel for it and sort of developing this aging technique, he comes back with an age of like 55. And I'm like, well, that turtle was caught in 1993 at 20. So you're probably right on. And so we've used a lot of that recapture data. We've used those measurements that other uh, researchers have, those growth rings that they've taken that data expanded upon it because we're getting so many recaptures and we were seeing these turtles that had no growth rings, you know, as you kind of grow up and learn about turtle research, you're like, Oh, growth rings can be kind of that estimate of age. And, you know, some years you might have more, um, growth annual eye. And so it's sort of this estimate, but with some of these long lived turtles, it smooths out completely. And then it's like, well, there's no growth rings. We don't. It's tough to estimate. Or we give you one and you say, oh, that looks 20, 25. And we're like, well, actually, all these growth rings have completely worn down. This turtle's more like 50 or 60.
4: And I'd say the caveat on that, too, is, um, you know, as Josh said, they, they counted the growth rings. They think there's 20 back in 1993, for the example he gave. We've also found the turtles don't put on growth rings every year. It's, it's probably most. Um, I have my suspicions that they might even possibly put on two rings in some years. You know, so they're they're out in the springtime. It's it's great weather conditions. They're doing their thing. They're active. They're eating. They go down for the summer when it gets too hot. They're not as active. And in the fall, maybe they eat again because y- you get these like faint growth rings on the bottom of them. Sometimes it almost looks like there's a double band.
2: Um, every year's different. Every, every year's c- different. Cicada emergence mm-hmm. one year, and they eat really well that fall. Yeah. And maybe that's a big growth ring that they don't get the next year. Oh, God.
4: And I think we've I measured a growth ring one year. It was like a centimeter wide yeah. on one of the, I think it was a mud turtle. Yeah. I was so- going to say, if
1: you want to talk about interesting growth, <laughs> we could tell you about some of the, the interesting juvenile uh, mud turtle recaptures that we get and some of the behavior with that, where I think last year we had an individual that never left the soil usually. So we didn't really talk about it, but mud turtles usually leave that sandy soil in late April-ish, you know, weather weather dependent, and they go to the wetlands to feed. They spend a couple months in those wetlands and then return to those upland areas to either estivate or eventually overwinter. And last year we had one that we thought was dead in the soil. And it was 370 days later, we went to dig it up to see, and it moved like the day prior. And yeah. so it was still alive, but it had never left the its
4: underground Estimation
3: underground for nearly two solid years before it came up to go out.
4: When we thought it it was dead too, he did eventually come up to the surface and like break the surface with his head. So we saw his shell. We realized he was like, okay, well he's not dead. So we didn't dig him up back then. We almost dug him up early Mm -hmm. year thinking he was dead, and then he moved just enough, just in the soil there. We're like, okay, he's alive. And so we needed to change the transmitter out. We're like, this
1: thing's really interesting. Like, we don't want to lose it. So we had to dig it up and, and put a new transmitter on it. And then sure enough, this year he behaves just the same as all the rest of them.
2: Mm. So this turtle lost its mind for a <laughs> couple <laughs> of years.
3: It was out for two months, underground for almost a solid two years, and then back out of the, and into the water. Yeah.
1: I think it would have been what, 22 months
3: underground. Yeah. twenty two Two yeah. months. Uh and if you guys you guys can't
4: see the look on mike's face right now but it is priceless it's (laughs) a shame this isn't a video podcast all the rest (laughs) of the
3: turtles came out that year and did their thing except for that one and he was sitting like just below the surface it wasn't like he was buried all the way down deep he came up a couple inches there's
2: always a derpy one there's always that one so then we had
3: this
4: juvenile though too we caught a juvenile mud turtle last year the year before we marked it so we we found it on the hill side of the fence we know which way they're going on the fence and we found this little turtle and we're like oh my god it's marked we're like why how'd this turtle get back up the hill we 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 put him in the pond when we find him coming down the hill how did it get back on this side of the fence without us catching it then we looked it up and realized we had caught it like three or three years prior yeah It only put on one growth ring at that time and like barely any growth at all.
1: Yeah. And so it's like like just a few grams of growth on like
4: a 15 gram turtle. And it's like, for all we know, that turtle just never went down to the water either. It could just a little juvenile sat up on land. I mean, we don't know. We weren't tracking it, but you wonder when they're not growing at all.
2: Um, it's kind of incomprehensible in many ways,
4: which you, you know, like, sorry to cut you off, but uh, like,
1: as we, as we study these things, like why, why do they stay underground for 10, 11 months at a time? Like, and then a rain event will occur and you're like, okay, that's going to stimulate them. They're going to move and they still stay in there. And like, we don't, we don't know. We don't know what's really stimulating them. We don't know what's going
3: on. Well, even in a big year where there's a lot of water, you would think, oh, there's a ton of water they can feed for an extra month if they want. They still don't. Yeah. They're, they have a clock and when that clock alarm clock goes off they're up the hill
2: you think these turtles have sort of a uh inherited a activity clock from earlier conditions probably we uh, uh, the, when the climate was different and they really haven't changed much because They're surviving on what they're doing now. Uh,
4: We've talked about this a little bit about how they established that because the idea of doing a jumpstart program has been discussed amongst us. And like I said, we need need to fix some other problems first. But then the question is, if you you raise one of these mud turtles in captivity for the first year, year or two, does it know to do that cycle? Does it know to go back up into the sand after two months? Or if you keep it in captivity, we'll just adopt a normal I'm active for the summer and I only go back for four months.
2: Well, here we have it, yet another North American turtle that uh, does not stick to one habitat. The same thing with Blanding's turtles and wood turtles and bog, tur- bog turtles, and they utilize various habitats over the course of a year, uh, which also is important for the conservation of these turtles. They're not in the water all year, and they don't <laughs> hibernate in the water. Yeah. So uh, it, it's interesting that sort of we don't talk about that that much because you know the Blanding's turtle is the or as I call them, the prairie marsh turtle, (laughs) is the, uh, that's the star of utilizing multiple habitats. Everybody talks about how Blanding's turtles wander around the landscape and use this water and this land and so on and so forth.
4: uh, So we kind of digressed away from the the box turtles, and I don't know if this will loop us back around, but it's funny you talk about the different habitat usage. So we have these, you know, aquatic turtles who one decides to stay on land, maybe a couple we've been finding more and more this year we've been finding our box turtles swimming in the ponds yeah and they're taken to the water so it's, it's it's like you have to I think Mike I think I think you told me this one time we were at snake Road I remember what I asked you and you go you know Don herps don't read field guides <laughs> and I am reminded of that constantly when we're out here working with these turtles we're like we first saw oh well I saw it I got a video of it of one of our box turtles doggy paddling across some flooded areas a couple of years back and this year we've seen two of them outright doggy paddling down the water. And I think I've seen at least five that retreated to the water and then stuck their heads up for air out from under the debris and stuff. Uh I guess I don't know if I should mention the parasitism because it's going to be oh, possible. Yeah, yeah, so we, we, uh Josh has walked up two now. They have turtle leeches on them, uh. on box turtles that are terrestrial. Okay,
2: so they're getting
4: the water. <laughs> they're getting the water and getting yeah. turtle leeches on so them. They're
2: in the water long enough for a leech to attack. That's yeah. Awesome. And and it's funny, you know, you go to Kansas, you go out to the plains of Kansas and you find ornate box turtles out on the prairie landscape, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. hardly ever have any kind of bodies of water Mm -hmm. unless there's, you know, maybe in the spring there's creeks and things like that. But there's no, there's no overflow ponds or or oxbow lakes or anything. And so they don't live where there's a lot of water, but here there's water. So they use it.
3: Well, I think it's more of that they're not afraid of it. I mean, yeah. people think well, well box turtles if you put them in the water they're just going to sink like a rock and die but that what yeah, we're that's, what that's we're right mostly saying is that 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 they 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 don't need the water but they'll swim across it if they if it's in the way of where they want to go they're not afraid to cross it yeah. cuz they have a home range and if we flood hard enough they want that turtle wants to get back to its home range it's going to swim across the water to get there i don't mm-hmm. i mean we're not i don't think we're saying that they become aquatic but they, and they don't i still don't think they require water you know, they get water from what they eat or whatever, you know, sure. and they'll drink if it's there, but, but, uh, you know, they're still a land turtle, but they're not afraid of water.
4: Well, and when I think people forget, like I said, they're in the family of me today. They're in the pond turtle family, Yeah. you know, I mean, again, not saying they're going to swim and stuff like that, but it's like, they do have webbed feet I and mean, they're not like uh tortoises where it's a little elephant tail feet, but they,
2: they also use the wooded areas mm. yes. as well. They're um, like we found quite a few today <laughs> yeah. under the trees, yeah. um, which the sun's not beating down on them. They don't have to worry about burrowing to get out of the sun uh-huh. when it gets too hot. They can spend a big chunk of their day foraging in the shade. Where there's more to eat.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. And it's cooler, so they don't have to worry about overheating. And they just, they're just they just chilling there. And that's where we end up seeing a lot of mating activity that occurs too. So then the, the thought is that, these animals are a lot more active like in, in the tree cover because they don't have to worry about overheating. And so they're coming in contact with a lot more with, that could also bolster our population that we're studying as well. Because I feel like this year we've documented, I don't know, 33 dozen mating
4: uh Yeah, it's, it's got to be somewhere up it's there. It's a lot. And we, we see it all throughout the year. Yeah. I mean, it, I think when they're a little less active in the summertime, but it's like you go into those woods. Yeah. I mean, what? It's, it's June 1st or 2nd today, right? Yeah. We and we time. found a mating pair in the yeah. woods today. Yeah.
3: So. Well, one time we were tracking one of our turtles. We thought it was a female at the time. We'd missexed it. And Don picks the turtle up and there was another turtle near. He's holding them in his hand. And our turtle mounted the other turtle in Don's hand while he was holding them. So the turtle we thought was a female mount, was the one that mounted the other turtle. Apparently it was a male that we'd missexed. That's a that's not the f- only time we've had to confirm the sex of our <laughs> turtles by
4: Oh look, we're tracking this one. It's a male. Except it's on the bottom. Oops. <laughs> yeah, so you know as, a, as as we were talking about the, like the iterative process of this, so we we
1: start to see so many turtles using the the woodlands and then we're talking essentially today that it would be a great interesting study to put transmitters on one that spends more time in the woods, one that's out in the prairie, look at movement behaviors, looking at uh, uh, movement, looking at behavior, looking at uh, the, the temperatures that they keep themselves at and see, is there a difference between these? And is it you really, you know, anecdotally, you see that they're more active there. Is that truly what's going on?
3: Yo.
2: Yeah, you're good. Okay. <laughs>
3: My mic cable <laughs>
2: <Oops>. fell out. <laughs> oh, man. I hate when that happens. <laughs> Yeah, and and so you know, the, there's no end of the questions here, right? I mean, you could just keep coming up with new projects and new ideas for. Uh, well, uh, it's, it's but interesting. We're also ta- how many how many ornates are we talking about in oh. this preserve? A billion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you're talking how many? So yeah, obviously
4: we've now. I would like to state for the record that Jim and I don't agree with the population estimate that Josh is about to give. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just do what the numbers Josh tell me. I, I do what the numbers tell me. And I told them it was a coarse estimate. I'm going to say right now, we've marked, we're right at a thousand individuals. So we started 2018, uh, you know, we've 2018, 2021, 2022, and 2023 were all big years.
2: Oh, wait a minute. You've marked a thousand individual. Correct. That does not count the turtles that you, that were, marked earlier by other no reasons? we
4: we have a thousand unique turtles we've caught so some of that is old ones that they have that we've oh, recaptured okay. yeah. and some are ones but that we a have thousand marked thousand
3: individuals so period.
4: since 2018 we have captured around a thousand individual turtles that we know are on thousand the site
2: unique
3: yes turtles. some correct. we've marked some previously marked. okay
1: okay correct wow
4: so then remember this place is guarded, poachers. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Machine gun towers on every there, corner. Actually, there are armed, armed guards. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. A couple of random cameras that notify people on phone yeah. calls. But it, at any rate, so then I'm like, okay, what is the actual, you know,
1: every every the million dollar question is always like, well, how many turtles are here? And you're asking us. And so we have enough data that I kind of did a course estimate looking at that recapture data and looking at the number of times that we we're out there surveying, looking at level of effort and all that stuff and running the numbers. The estimate says between it was 1,200 and
3: 1,400. So we have 200 more turtles to catch. So we're going to start a turtle catch countdown. 200 (laughs) count when we get to, then we can quit.
2: done
1: i think when i came up with that i didn't i didn't come up with that i think when i calculated came up with with yes that then that next day jim was to give me a hard time about it and every time he would find a new turtle he would just like needle it like oh this one's new
4: no what's great (laughs) what's great is that josh and i get competitive about finding new turtles and like jim jim's like okay whatever guys you guys go do what you want jim got really into finding turtles that day because so many of them were new josh had just told us well guys you guys got to think about the new capture we're not finding as many new ones right now jim goes well here's a new one yeah, yeah. well here's a
2: new one well here's <laughs> a new one well we even today we got new new caps today how many new captures I'm not
1: uh, sure. i think we caught 15 turtles and of those 15 turtles i know four were all yours recaps
2: um
3: yeah mine were. i
1: think right. we got five so 33 of the five captures new
3: unique <laughs> turtles so They're still. So we have 195 left to go. (laughs)
0: All
1: right. You know, like with this population estimate, also, it doesn't take into account um, the smaller individuals. We don't have enough mark recapture data on those. So I kind of just looked at those that were over, I want to say it was like over eight centimeters. So it doesn't account for the first like five years of age. So there's probably a lot of those.
4: It also doesn't account for how awesome we are at finding turtles. That, that's that's true
2: <laughs> you guys are good I you know was amazed we're, we're processing turtles from the, the traps and you know like oh well there's one right over there <laughs> we'll get to that when we get done here with this turtle we'll go to that turtle and we'll process that oh look there's another one over there <laughs> and you' you're look you're sighting turtles that are 30 40 feet away you just you're you're so tuned into you can just pick it out. Well, you can or, hear oh, it too, and you can yeah. hear them too. Yeah,
1: and it's also a product of the site. Like, like you yourself, you know, we're just kind of start to meander in the woods, and you're like, oh, here's one. Oh no, it's a second one
4: too. Yeah,
2: I get two. Yeah, right. just and like then that. the one
4: that was sitting a meter away the whole time <laughs> we were there <laughs> in the ground and just
2: yeah, yeah there was yeah. a little uh, a, a youngster, relatively yeah. youngster. D-
1: that's a good. That's a good one. Yeah, good youngster.
2: Yeah. So I don't know how old that turtle was. It was probably the size of uh, we estimated five. About five years. Five years. Yeah.
1: So we've got enough that we've caught as hatchlings. We've got enough uh, recapture stuff now that we know that this was probably a two-year-old turtle. And now we see what a five-year, a known five-year-old turtle, how big it is.
2: It would probably sit comfortably on them. It was
4: 6.5 centimeters.
2: 6.5 centimeters.
4: Yeah. I only remember
2: that because it was 65 uh, grams yeah, was, and 6.5 6. centimeters. Okay. So- it was not a large turtle. And, and so that gets, I'm sure that gets you excited because you're like, okay, this is great because, well, we have all these old, oldsters. We don't change much over time. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't really learn anything in terms of growth rates. We can learn things, certainly things about survival mm-hmm. and things like that and movement patterns. But the, the young ones can teach us more about how they, how they do, how fast they grow. You know, that that sort of thing. It's another element that you can't get with a 60-year-old turtle.
3: Yeah. We kind of... What's the... Is it illusion of persistence? Is that the term that they use for turtles? Because you can be in an area and see lots and lots of turtles, but is there really enough recruitment going on since turtles live so long? You wonder... We rarely would see little ones, so you get nervous. Well, we got a lot of 60-year-old turtles, but do we have two-year-old turtles? And that goes back to the raccoons as well, because the raccoons predate the Ornestnates really bad. So um, we're hoping that we're gonna see even more and more juveniles now with the raccoon. I'd like to point
4: out that you just said Ornestnates. I did. Yeah. I'm or, pretty sure you just said Ornes. I, or <laughs> I think that's so. That's like
3: Capipsi. I might, that's maybe I'm wrong
4: on it. that. Maybe I'm wrong on other. That's how they the, say it in Capipsi. And then people are gonna laugh at me because I heard it wrong, but that's what I heard. I'm um, sure that's
2: how they say it in Capipski.
4: Yeah. So uh, there's um there, <laughs> uh,
0: another
2: friend <laughs> Snort.
4: of mine. Another friend of mine who did some work here in Iowa. Um, he was radio tracking hatchling box turtles and I, I think they just published a paper on growth data. So I think I can talk about this a little bit. Um, growth isn't out yet. The growth isn't out yet. But the, the tracking the hatchlings is. Okay. So they, but they, and I don't know if this is part of that note. So, um, they're tracking these hatchlings the first year and he said they weren't putting on any weight at all. They, they'd start them in the year. And by, so their first year of growth, they, they broke even. There was no growth on them at all. So he started giving them one mealworm every time he replaced their transmitter every three weeks. And those turtles added 50% more weight by the end of the year. So you get these turtles where it's like, they're just not eating. They're just not doing anything. They're just getting by.
2: Are they not encountering food?
4: I mean, they're... God, you guys found that what? That little... Great question. That little hatching box How would we answer that? I don't know. (laughs) You got a, what, 5.6 gram was that smallest box turtle you guys found the other day or something like that? Yeah. You, You know, like I start to wonder... As you talk about
1: hatchlings and you talk about the other turtle species there, that we see the sliders, uh, the red-eared sliders, the greptemis, the map turtles, and the painted turtles. Uh, We catch hatchlings in the spring. So even though the females are coming up to nest essentially now, those nests should presumably be hatching in August, 60 days from now, August. Um, and then instead of those hatchlings coming out and making their way to the water, then they're staying in the nest. And so they're obviously not putting any growth on, and then they don't pop out of that nest until that following spring. So we would see in our pitfalls, like April, May, we get a a bunch of hatchlings. And so I wonder if that's kind of similar, what might be going on with ornates, but instead of staying in the nest, you know, they kind of pop up and do their thing and don't they're not too active and that's why they're not putting on any growth and it, it takes that next year for them to really get stimulated and it's like all right now it's the spring I'm going to start feeding and, and putting Interesting.
2: on yeah may, maybe all hypothesis so they're they're still living off their yolk sac and whatever calories they eat. well and you might get so we
4: we've questioned the growth rings thing for a while too cuz I think it might have been 18 or 19 we caught two little turtles I want to say seven-ish centimeters, well, eight-ish maybe. We caught, And I'm I'm probably way off pace, but they were small. And they were on that access road, you know, going to where park. So they were, they were the exact same size turtles. One had 12 growth rings and one had four. Mm. So one had four massively wide growth rings and the other one had 12 of these little narrow ones. Now, the thing I wonder is that we do have some non-native mulberry trees out there. Mm. And so if you get one of these little, little box turtles who happens to be laid near a mulberry tree and of course it hatches out it's sitting there, and suddenly food just starts falling out of the sky you know maybe those ones do really good those first few years and maybe those are the turtles that grew up to be our 13 centimeter 500 gram adults you know versus the one who was laid out in the barren wasteland of just sand and no food those are the the baseballs we are finding today where the turtles 50 years old and still only the size of a baseball yeah you yeah. know really tiny because stunted growth you know because he didn't eat a lot of it. We, we don't know though
3: Talk about Monstro.
4: Oh, oh, god. Okay, so what I want to say are, are like our adult turtles are usually in the three hundred gram range, and we would consider a big Orna- box
3: the ornate box well, turtles. ornate box turtle. Sorry,
4: because I know some of you people doing work with the easterns and be like
3: our easterns
4: are nine hundred grams. Yeah, we know that. Shut up. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> so. To,
1: to to say, we also have a thousand individual data with a thousand individuals of growth or of weights, so we could tell exactly, but we haven't had time to look. But right. yes, three hundred ish grams.
4: Three hundred grams is, is about a good size. And so if you get if you're getting into like four hundred and fifty grams, you're a, a good size, hefty box turtle. Monstro topped out at five hundred and eighty grams. Mm. So I think we have about a dozen now that have been over five, but some are only like five hundred three, five hundred four, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, but Monstro it's, topped it's still
3: off eighty grams. Mm-hmm. Bigger than any other box turtle we yeah. captured. One yeah. turtle. Else. And
4: and I, w- I would say, in general, you know, 100 grams bigger than what we consider a big box turtle. Yeah. And she has like 13 centimeters or something yeah, like that, or huge. even a little bigger and than she that. She
3: spends the majority of her summer camped out under a mulberry tree. Yeah. Just putting on pounds. <laughs> we tr-
4: we <laughs> you tracked
2: her. You think her. that's it? You think yeah. the mulberry tree is it? Her we face tracked her one was year red just because we were most curious. Most of the time from
3: mulberry juice.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think we first caught her. She was at like five twenty, and then it was probably I think at the five eighty time. It was about the time she was developing yeah, eggs. See, Plus, yeah. she was her face was purple, like I said, with mulberry juice. So, um, so between the two factors, she she does well for herself.
3: So. It's funny because we tracked her for a while too, and all of the track turtles have. I mean, all all box turtles have home ranges. They vary in size to some degree, but her home range was really, really small. Mm. We could basically walk right to where she other than when she was off on her nesting run. We could walk, and there she would be, sitting within a few hundred feet of these mulberry tree spots.
1: Which could be another interesting sort of point to bring back to the roads, the lack of roads, and why the box turtles are doing so well. So you you've been out there. You see how much adjacent habitat there is also to the preserve. You see how much is what you would probably assume is suitable box turtle habitat. Like it looks great all, as far as the eye can see, um, you know, a good chunk of it's protected. Some of it's private for other reasons. Uh, and then when we're doing these home range studies, you know, one of the things that we find is as Jim saying, they have they typically have a pretty tight home range. We know about where they're going to be. And then all of a sudden, right about this time of year, the females are just going to beeline. And that female moves a considerable distance where we're talking kilometer on, on a few of the individuals and passing all of these areas that you would think is suitable nesting habitat because other box turtles have been known to nest there, but she'll, she'll beeline it and then nest and then immediately come back to that home range. So for some reason, something in her says, get away from where I met Skip all this great suitable habitat, you know, risk going past this, past this and doing this uh, to nest. And so then when you're talking about habitat fragmentation, when you're talking about roads, that a lot of these more postage size um, areas that box turtles are still at as that illusion of. Of persistence. Of persistence. So you see a few of those individuals there, but what's happening every year is a female's crossing a road to go to this suitable nesting habitat. And she gets hit so she doesn't end up reproducing and it slowly is extirpated from from those sites. That's why yeah. sites like this are so
4: important the to ever conserve.
2: tightening spiral of extinction. <laughs> what I think oh.
4: is interesting to that too, and sorry Jim if I cut oh. you off, that, um, so we have, we have another fairly strong population of box turtles in Iowa and uh, it's broken up into sections for the research and I, and I won't say the names of it, but there's, there's one where all these turtles come back to nest and overwinter on this one dune. And that's, what's weird is that in this case, these turtles out in the year, they're, they're, down in these dogwood trees. They're out in these soybean fields. They're out in these tall, tall grass prairie, or it's probably not prairie. it's called it reed canary grass, whatever. It's nasty stuff, but they all come back to the same spot to nest. All these females congregate back to this dune to nest in this one particular area. And there's another smaller population, um, same thing, there's like one dune that's sustaining I mean, there's probably like 20 turtles left of this population up there, but there's this one dune and all these turtles come back and nest on the dune. Our turtles that have this massive area of habitat that's unbroken, no roads, no nothing, they don't go to the same areas to nest. They take off, you know, like you said, a kilometer. And the weird thing is, you'll have one turtle, you know, spends all his time down, in, I'll just say the south end of the preserve, and it heads north a kilometer to an area. And there's a turtle that lives in that area who goes a kilometer south and ends up back where the turtle was? And they nest in opposite spots. It's like, well, if the nesting habitat is there, why didn't they just stay where they're at nesting? Spread you know?
3: those genetics around.
4: Right. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, snapping turtles kind of do the same thing, right? They never, they could lay their eggs on the bank of the lake or the river and as some of them do, but other ones travel.
4: Right. Or miles
2: yeah. to lay their eggs.
4: God, we get sliders that come so far up away from the water to lay nests yeah. too. It's like, what are
3: you doing? This has got to be counterproductive. It's hard to imagine a, a, an inch long slider being able to walk two miles back to the yeah. water. And yeah.
2: it, it really hit home for me. Um, we was down in Southern Illinois, um, in a particular area in the catch river wetland area. And we were probably three quarters of a mile from any water and, uh, several hundred feet above the water on the side of a, you know, hillside. And there's a painted turtle, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the trail, mm. uh, unbelievably far from water and she's you know she's carried up a bunch of water and she's voided her bladder to s- soften the uh the, the dirts of layer eggs and i'm thinking and and it's all like a rocky downhill slope to maybe some water but it's so incredibly far how does that how do those baby turtles
3: how and, do you do it and after all that work some raccoon will just dig her nest up
2: <laughs> yeah well, or or, that's get, you're here, or
3: get the baby
4: after it hatches
3: yeah or eat the baby yes. yeah
2: so oh look a baby the turtle is, in a rock. Is amazing.
3: Yeah, it? that's crazy. Wow.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I just like I said I think the comparison though is where that you get these some some turtles and maybe it's an issue with the habitat at these other sites that all they have available for nesting is these particular dunes that they have and we have the advantage then that we have a huge swath of viable nesting habitat to the point where the turtles just go wherever they want and they can do that behavior of let's go a kilometer this way, let's go a kilometer this way, let's go wherever. And the same thing happens with the sliders and the map turtles. We find them just going so far up into anywhere. So they don't like hit a spot and go, well, I guess this is the sand we got, you know? Like I, I, I see I do map turtles along the river. We see them I and they come up and they hit the willow trees and they go, well, I guess this is where we're nesting because where else is their sand, you know? And yet these turtles come up and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going. And, keep going. and so that's, that's an advantage we have. And it's interesting just to see the difference from different sites and the nesting behavior of these turtles.
3: We've been tracking two females since the beginning of the project. And it's interesting to see where they end up nesting year over year. Female, Two female ornate, ornate box body. turtles, yeah. Mm-hmm. So And so we have every year basically data of where they're nesting. And it's been interesting to see that they, they don't always go to the same exact spot to nest, but they always go in the same direction. Ah. They may go a little further one year. They may go a little less eat one year, but they, they head east for X number of you know of distance each time, but but it's all, not always consistent. But then they always go right back to their same home range hmm. where they head spend their For the their rising sun Be- the setting basically, sign. yeah, huh. sort of Maybe. seems that way.
2: Well, what about the future with this all of this? The future, the future, John. Oh boy, uh, you you obviously uh, prepare reports and collect a lot of data for uh, the benefactors. Of, of this property that they allow, you know, makes all this happen, makes this uh, uh, a place for these animals to thrive and, and survive. So you have those reports on what's going on and where their money is spent and how it's spent and all that, that you uh, expect to publish some some t- scientific publications on some of these results at some point in the future. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Short answer is yes. So, y- y- you know, I think the
1: important thing to do is show, you know, who's who's funding it, that it's money well spent, that, you know, we're not out there just to do research. And and I, I, they they all know, like they come out on these field trips, they see, you know, the interactions. So they know there is that going on. But then looking at, oh, we cut out all these trees, like I said, and and uh, the hognose are using it, these, so they can see this immediate sort of return on that investment. And so then I'm hoping that we can continue that partnership and say, all right, well, now we're going to do this because we've showed that this works and continue with this raccoon removal, continue with clearing these trees, uh, partner with the TNC and, uh, fish and wildlife to do these prairie burns and see what happens pre post burn. So there's, there's a lot of, I think, interesting potential study, uh, designs, uh, study potential that we could do there too, to show, you know, the pluses and minuses of doing X, Y, Z. And then, like I say, there's piles of data that it's going to take a while to, to analyze, to go through. And so my hope is that we, we are sitting on all this data that, you know, as Don with the developing this hurt mapper thing that we can use to collect a million pictures of box turtles that as we talk about rings, somebody might be able to go back and look at every single one of these pictures and, and figure out like uh, using AI to identify how many rings there are or which individuals these are, you know, things like that and then continue that process and, and maybe uh, get some of uh, like undergraduate college kids out there to do, to do their own small projects uh, that they can do on a smaller scale and, 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 and get them to do this biology, the science, and maybe, maybe publish a little something here, because I think a lot of the the data that we're collecting, a lot of the things that we're seeing is important, not only on sort of that, that micro scale, like properties specific, but on the the larger scientific scale that, you know, we are seeing this interesting estivation behavior, you know, why, why are, why is a turtle doing that is might that benefit humans and talking about longevity? Um, Is there something with their developmental thing that, uh, that that people might be able to, to tap into, uh, there's so much, so much data. So to me, so many potentials. And, and we talk about all these, these, these things, but, you know, probably starting to focus on some of the, the lower hanging fruit and, and get some of that data out there.
2: Well, if you only had a couple of guys to help you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I got I guys that are get two better people.
1: I, I got guys that are great at uh, collecting that data. It's it's the analysis part. And, uh, you know, we're always open to potential collaborations with other uh, researchers, other biologists out there, because, like I say, we we do collect a lot of this, that we want this to to help our site, to help the species, to help the conservation of these species Um But if there's any way that the stuff that we're doing can benefit, you know, a larger audience, more people uh, get into collaborating, like we're, we're always open. We're always looking, what more can we do? What, what else, you know, there's there's no ceiling really. It's like, who's going to stop us. We're going to keep, keep doing this X, Y, Z until it gets too hot and we got to quit and get water.
4: (laughs) Uh, I, I want to say, too, I mean, like, we talk about the future, and, you know, you guys talk about publications and great things, but th- there's a dark side, or a, a bleak outlook of the future, possibly, too, that we think about. We talk about this a lot, is that there's going to come a day where we, the three of us can't do this anymore. You know, we we, we will reach a point where we can't. Um, Eventually, we, we can knock all the raccoons out every single year here. They're not on sight. Eventually, they're going to come back. So, like... I think short term, like what we're hoping for is we can knock them back enough to give enough recruitment of these box turtles, these mud turtles, these hognose snakes, that maybe their numbers will get to a point where as the raccoons come back, there's at least still enough recruitment to sustain them. But I think more importantly, you know, we kind of touch, we do these field trips all the time. And uh, I'm going to digress for a minute. We actually won two awards <laughs> for doing public education with kids and working in endangered species. We did not win the reptiles and amphibian award.
3: Yeah, that that is, was a rip. I was rigged. It's a yeah.
4: mid- or, matter of pride. We did not. We we won education. We won endangered species. We did not win reptiles and amphibians. So if anybody involved in that company, you know who you are. <laughs> you made the wrong choice. So
2: <laughs>
4: wow. we, we, we talk with these kids. You, you can't know?
2: win them all. Though. I mean, yes, I can. That's an axiom. That yes, reptiles. I
4: can. I should have won them all. <laughs> so so we have these kids out too and and we we've talked about it again with with the people from the companies the board and stuff like that too that that's kind of the hope is that you have to hope that one of these kids at least or three of them let's assume we have to replace ourselves three of these kids it'll probably
3: take four to replace us uh, probably 40. (laughs) no
4: that some of them are going to step up and do this right that at some point you need these people to step up and whether it's to take charge of, of controlling the raccoons to get out there and cut the trees, or, I mean, I hate going this route because I really I really would prefer people take a hands-on approach. I think we need more of that, but at very least, we need someone who's willing to spend some money to do some stuff and mm. pay some people to do stuff. So you need, whether it's, and, and, and not to make this too political, you need the voting base, the people who will vote to do that stuff, the people who are focused on conservation to get the stuff in there, because eventually the volunteers die, unfortunately. You know, that sounds really bleak, but that's, it's the hard truth, right? Eventually the guys doing it now aren't going to be there, and you need someone to take it over. So we're doing our best to make sure we push it the longest we can, I
0: think
4: I'm that we can it push it. It is kind of you know. sad, Yeah. I can't lie. Yeah, but but again, it, it's a reality check people need. Like you you look at this stuff and you go, and we can sit here all day long and talk about we're doing great stuff and it's amazing. And people go, oh yeah, see, this is great. These, these animals are gonna do fine because Until Josh- Until you Jim,
2: let up, the first time you let up, exactly. thinking
4: oh, back. We, exactly. So we saw, us the first year we were trapping we got down to where we suddenly weren't catching any raccoons and we we're like, all oh, right, well we're done trapping raccoons. We went down to our weekly stuff and we'd go out there. We suddenly there's raccoon traps or trails back mm-hmm. along the ponds. Yeah. The minute you let up. So and they come
3: in from the river. That's what gets us. Yeah. So they're just so, yeah. not the ones that are there. They're the ones that are outside that come back in.
4: So, yeah. But so, yeah. So I guess the, the point of that is, again, I know I'm not trying to be sad and it would been like, and again, I don't want to sound like we're all high and mighty. We're, but get out and do something if you can, you know, because it's it's. Yeah, there, you need more people to do it.
2: So yeah, and
4: well, please get your kids into herps. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and not necessarily herps, Con- conservation, nature.
4: Right. You know, there's yeah. a lot of a lot. Yeah, of, don't yeah. get them into breeding ball pythons.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> well,
2: what did I what did I not talk what did I not touch on that we need Western
4: <laughs> hogs we haven't really got into yet. Hey, have I tried oh. I tried to lead into it a little bit,
2: but well, we did catch uh, one of the Western hogs we got today. uh yacked up a couple of box turtle eggs. Uh-huh. Which is interesting, um, but it uh, it only yacked up, that's the technical scientific term, <laughs> it is, yes. regurgitated, it only yacked up the shells.
3: It, it and didn't. a tiny bit of and the And a yolk. tiny
2: bit of the yolk. So the, the snake retains the significant portion of the yolk. So usually when a snake, you know, you, you take some data from an animal and it, it bars up a mouse. Yacks like, oh, up the mouse. Yeah. You you feel bad, right? Mm-hmm. Or if it's eating yaks, it yaks at the yak, yakety um, <laughs> yak. Yeah,
3: don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> a really old reference there.
2: You guys get me, uh, but it, but anyway, you feel bad, right? Oh, this thing, uh, the mouse, it, it regurgitated a mouse, it missed a meal. You feel bad, but this in this case is like okay, well, there's still some yolk, and the snake got some of the, the you know turtle yolk. So there's still uh, some benefit there. But at, we are talking about putting back a, a healthy interplay. You take the raccoons out of the picture. You still have things eating turtle eggs. You have western hognos that are eating box turtle eggs, um, slider eggs, snapping turtle eggs.
4: I wouldn't be surprised they're eating uh, racer eggs, bull snake eggs if they find
3: them out. Well, maybe not bull snake eggs. They're a little chunky. The only thing is that snake eggs tend to clump up. Yeah, it's more true. they clob together where turtle yeah. eggs are more separate.
2: Right. But they're nevertheless they're eating these eggs, and that is right and natural. They that's exactly. what should be happening. They
3: belong there the raccoons do not.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: uh you know, a raccoon yes. or two belongs raccoon. there, not yes. the numbers that the we're The raccoons seeing.
2: are out of control because yes. there's nothing that's yes. predating exactly the raccoons except for Jim. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And there's no cars to predate
3: them. No, yeah. yeah, there's no
2: cars. Yeah, no cars. Uh, so
3: even though that's a good thing for the turtles, it's a bad thing for the right. rat. But it was
2: just interesting. If I got to thinking about that today when, when those turtle eggs come out of that snake. Was, yeah, okay, this is, this is what should be happening on a larger scale and... Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the, the hognos are also eating the mud turtle eggs and the mud turtle, you know. So you got to get the mud turtles back up so they can withstand that natural production. There's,
3: I don't know. I don't know if I believe that they're eating the mud turtle eggs just because of the difference in the way the mud turtles lay their eggs. Do you want to?
1: I, I, I think I agree. Uh, you know, we, we don't know 100%, but I, the mud turtles are kind of weird when they lay. We, we think they come up, sort of estivate, sort of lay, and then the mom sits there. In the area-ish for a day or two with those eggs, and then she moves.
2: We Are think. you saying she's guarding the egg?
1: No. <laughs> I'm saying she's might be tuckered out and she just happens to be there. We don't, you know, we don't have enough data points to say for certain of that yet, and we're kind of working
3: to and figure that it, out.
2: It may be beneficial to the eggs.
3: Yeah. Uh-oh. And and I think they're they're like a little deeper. It's like they kind of pop down into the dirt and then tunnel down to lay their eggs. They don't just excavate a nest like other turtles do and then cover it back up with dirt. There's none of that that goes on. So it's harder to detect the nests with mud turtles. So I think there's very little mud turtle nest predation going on. With the mud turtles, it's more about the raccoons eating the actual adults.
4: For anyone not in the know, if you go out to a known turtle nesting site, dig a hole and fill it in, and a raccoon will have dug it up the next day. You don't even got to put anything in it. We did it with a stick and a rock one day. Yeah. I remember reading this paper. I think, um, did Andrew Durso do some stuff with this up at his site? I'm trying to remember who I first talked to about it. and. uh oh, yeah, but they, they they're trying to figure out like how the how the raccoons know where the nests are and they think they're I mean, I've heard theories like, oh, they're detecting nitrogen from the soil disturbance. Oh, they can smell the eggs. Well, the smelling of the eggs part's been ruled out. Cause like I said we buried rocks. Yeah. And I have done it or we just dug a hole, filled it in, and they dig the hole back up.
2: That's right. Because I think they did they did some work where they just took a rake mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they just took a rake and covered a and raked this the sand over a large area and it, it just prevented the raccoons from figuring out where the nest right
3: right because we literally dug like a two inch wide hole maybe eight inches deep dropped a rock down in that hole filled the dirt back in the next morning a raccoon had come and dug that rock up out of the ground Interesting. Just based on the scent of the dirt. Yeah. So, so the so, way these mud turtles... So the mud dig- turtles don't really do that.
4: Yeah. They dig in. They kind of, like Jim said, they tunnel down a w- certain way. They sit there. The ground is no longer disturbed. You might get some digging at where they first went into the ground, but of course they've shifted over here 12 inches or so. Yeah, they
3: kind of dig in in a circle, we think.
1: Which, Which is also why I say we have few data points is because we know when they do it and we know they go in gravid. And we know they come out not gravid, and so it's been difficult for us to locate. But we have not seen the raccoons so
2: locate them. The, the mama turtle goes in, corkscrews corks into, into the, the ground, ground a bit, mm-hmm. into the sand. We should say, yeah, is, no, not not the hard dirt, into the sand. And at some point, she lays the eggs while she's underground, mm-hmm. and then she emerges, she corkscrews and, and back I'd out. Say the closest evidence that we have.
4: So there's one year, one of our tracked females had come up, and she dug into the ground. And, and again, we don't know what she had done, but all we know is that a couple of days into this, there's suddenly a hog nose size hole coming straight up out of the ground where she was at in the ground. And I could look down and see her face down in this cavity, about six inches under the surface. So we think in that case, a hog nose snake might have got lucky, and you know maybe coming through an animal burrow or something, stumbled upon her and her eggs, did them, and said, "Well, I gotta gotta heat up and get these things digested, Popped straight up out of the ground. So, and again, you could look right down in this hole and just see the turtle sitting down in this cavity, six inches down this little quarter size huh. hole. So that's, that's how we kind of suspect. I mean, that's, we were, we had suspected it before that. And that's just a little more evidence and observational thing that we had for it.
3: So, so that was a long digression. I don't even remember where we were we ended up down this mud we're, turtle, we're talking about down, down the, the mud turtle oh, rabbit yeah. hole. But <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So, so, you we know, were talking hognose when, you're to, when you go back this. to that
1: hognose and say they're eating natural, you know, one of the things that we're hoping that we're also going to document is that the raccoon control that we're doing might also bolster those, uh, those, that hognose population, you know, the, the raccoons aren't getting potential young hognose getting the eggs there. And I, I feel like We've been seeing it, you know, seeing the and you you yourself witnessed a couple of small hognose. Um
2: I would like to point out that <laughs> uh oh that I with my sixty four year old spotted a five point seven gram hognose snake from about ten feet away. On the crawl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on, on the, the crawl. crawl. So yay me.
4: With low sun and overcast skies. Yes. Yeah. Impressive.
2: Smug. I, smug. I got one too. I got one too. Didn't yours I? was seven point
3: something? but, yeah, but I, I got one too. Who else? Who, who was else? Was the was guy that?
2: who didn't get a hog nose? I can't remember. It, I wasn't, I Josh wasn't, there, I so it wasn't. Josh wasn't there, so it wasn't was
3: Josh. it must have been. That didn't get a hog nose? Must have been that. I, I still it. love you guys. Sometimes <laughs> I wonder
4: what I'm paying him for. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's uh,
4: hurt better, Don. So to get back on point and not talk about how Don couldn't walk up a hog nose snake. Jeez, God, guys, it's not like I've never. No, I did walk up one. So you do feel like
2: maybe if you keep at these coons, you're going to get recruitment of the baby turtles, the baby snakes, the baby uh, whatever it is the coons are eating. Which,
1: again, is why we collect a bunch of this data to show that so that we we put some of our fences in areas near where no nests are, hoping that we'll see additional turtles coming up to
4: nest or additional hatchlings coming out. Um so, so an interesting observation real quick with the, with the eating of the eggs thing is that in 2018, 19, even 20, we weren't catching hognose snakes with eggs in their bellies. Not a lot. I mean, we might've got one or two and it, I think it was like last year. I think every single big adult hognose snake, we almost, I don't want to say every one of them, hundred percent. Most of them, like overwhelming most of them had eggs in their belly when we caught them in our traps. Like because th- they're
2: getting a chance to get to them because the coons aren't taking them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right.
4: I mean, it, it was such a rare thing that like the first time we found out the eggs, it's like, oh, look, she's grabbing. It took us a minute to go, wait, those eggs are too high. They should be down here. They're up here too high. Oh my, oh my God, they're
3: eating the eggs. Well, also a, a well-fed female snake is going to have a better time producing her own offspring. Yeah. And the uh,
4: the one other observation, and, and apparently this is in dispute. We're going to hope we can prove this. Um, Chris, Chris and I were talking about this one time when he tracked hognose snakes. You, you'd find these little piles of dried up eggshells like all crimped you know crimped together like literally it feels like they're crimped and folded into each other and he had said he always found them when they're tracking their hognose snakes and the and the belief is that you know they eat the eggs and they're not they're not excreting out their cloaca they're just spitting back up the eggshells all back together yacking. yeah 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 yakking them up
3: that's the term <laughs> sorry
4: so chris told me this and i thought this was just like that's what people said like that's what it was so turns out that's in dispute some people believe they still are passed out for the record there's no feces on them but i'm digressing. I think I had found like one or two piles of these things in 2018, 19, 20, stuff like that. Last year, we just went out walking around the prairie after we had this like massive hognose palooza and we're finding them. And I think we found like a dozen or so piles of these eggs, you know, these old eggshells in a small spot, which is more evidence that they're getting more.
2: On the surface, but with no hole. Like right, might have been right. Out. Well, okay. so right.
4: so what's happening is, yeah, you have the snake goes down in the nest, he eats these eggs, he comes back up, he sits, or she sits in the sun, digest and then all the yolk is out of them and they spit the shells back up or or pass them but it it could be probably 10 10 meters you know from the wherever wherever they went afterwards and i think i told you earlier i had one where i watched a slider come up and nest one day the next day there was a hog nose holes in it and two days after that i found these piles of regurgitated eggs like Ah. 10 meters away you know or egg shells. okay so interesting yeah it's, it's definitely making a difference of what they're getting for food we're pretty sure so
2: so now the collection of data you got to keep doing what you're doing to show that you're turning a corner right i mean now it becomes really important to show that there's some results from all this raccoon uh, mitigation and tree cutting yeah. and the tree cutting as well and the tree cutting yeah. you've got to keep collecting data to show that maybe you're turning a corner
3: yeah
1: which again the 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 companies that have the preserve have been great about that and, and they see the immediate results. And, you know, Don had said we've they got these awards and it's because of the work that we're all out there doing day after day after day, uh, that it it's kind of a win-win-win sort of situation and and really as I talk about the bigger conservation showing that it requires constant vigilance to get rid of the raccoons to get rid of the woody debris you can't do a two year study and then you know publish your results and that's it it's like a lot of work goes into to to maintaining that
2: yeah preserving it's a commitment yeah you just can't wrap it up and say good luck chuck and- yeah
3: oh. yeah or you can't say we'll be back in three years to do some more <laughs> yeah, right it has to be constant yeah because the raccoons will continue to come back in from other places if you don't stay on them
4: and we've we've seen this. So the one of the guys who's been out to help us, he works on a nearby property. Just don't know if I should call him out necessarily, but uh, he he's been trying to get approval to do more raccoon trapping on theirs too. Except their big thing is that again, they were going to push for doing it in the winter, and we're like, no, 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 no. You need to be out there in June. Do this in June, and again, but their biggest issue is in June they're busy doing other stuff. They have lands to manage. They have stuff to do. You know, and it's it's you can't. They can't take the time to be out there every single day running raccoon traps. You know, so it, it's it's unfortunately not an option for every property. I wish it was. I really wish every single property out there could be trapping raccoons. And and guys, I'm not, I'm not saying every property. There are places raccoons need to exist. They're they're a natural thing. I get it. But like they shouldn't be on our sand prairies and they're having an impact. And so you got to rid of And there's other places like that where you have endangered species that are being heavily impacted by raccoons and people aren't there to do it.
2: So. exactly. And I wonder, too, about things like, you know, the recovering wildlife. Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which is still percolating and trying to get its way through passage. Mm. If that ever passes, you know, perhaps that's another uh, avenue of funding for these types of sustained conservation effort instead of uh, relying on, uh, you know, the three-year project, as you say, the Mm -hmm. three-year project, maybe then some of these sustained projects would be uh, possible because there would be a constant source of funding.
4: How many foothold traps do you think a billion dollars would buy? <laughs> because <laughs> that's all we got to use it for. So, yeah, I hope I hope there's some some pushed efforts for that sustained stuff. Like you said, it's it's, and I think there's too many projects. You know, and you know, Josh has tried to come up with some other grants that we could possibly go for too to help with stuff that the DNR puts out. And um, when you do projects, and you have to worry about that year to year, where does your grant funding come from? It makes it hard to do a long term goal. Um, ours is still not guaranteed every year, but I think we're, we're stabler than most. We at least have a semi-stable, uh, source of funding. Uh, I also cheated and decided to move 10 minutes from the site. So worse comes to worse and, and, and they know this and they're not going to take advantage of it, I'm sure. But, um, worse comes to worse. I'm 10 minutes away. I'll, I'll keep going out and taking them out. But, but, uh, we, we do know that the companies appreciate what we're doing though. And I don't think we're, we're in jeopardy of losing some funding to help out with stuff. So,
2: well, I'm sure the state, and uh, uh, DNR and all those folks are also appreciative of the work that you, you three mm-hmm. are doing, um, even though it's, uh, it's not public land, uh, but I'm sure they're appreciative that. Well,
3: there are some partnerships with the lo- with DNR and, yeah. you know, and that. So, and they come out to the site quite a bit and, mm-hmm. you know, same with Nature Conservancy. And,
2: yeah, you're not and doing that. this in a vacuum.
4: No. no. Well, we brought a couple of DNR people out just because, you know, they're in the DNR and they've never seen a mud turtle in the state of Iowa. So we're like, oh, we track them now. Why don't you come see one? Might as well let them know what they're working to protect, you know? Yeah.
2: So, yeah. Josh, any final thoughts on... <sighs> on
4: yeah. I
1: appreciate the opportunity. Talk about the work that we do. Like, and giving a voice because... I think uh, the podcast tells interesting stories and makes it uh, easily accessible for a wider audience where you know it it it's important like like I the the education with the fourth graders to the high schoolers to the college kids that uh, like something like this gets more people interested in not only herbs, but then the conservation component of it so
2: I thank you yeah okay and I I can't underestimate this either we, we got to get past the idea we we, we have to control our fluffy favorite we have to control raccoons and deer and other critters that are just sort of uh you know off the food chain if you will we have to learn to control those and we have to be able to to accept that
4: there was a Paper a few years ago that referred to deer as brown, giant brown rats. Yeah,
3: I've, I've used that for a
2: long time. <laughs> but it's, it's it's
4: people don't understand. I mean, you have this stuff that's out of control, and and I get it. Deer are cool; they're majestic animals. I like seeing them out there. And they're tasty. And they're tasty. <laughs> but you know, they used to have some more natural control, and and I know people are against hunting, and they're like, oh my god, but why kill the animals? It's like, well, because nothing else is right. We we got rid of the mountain lions. We got rid of the, the natural predators. There's no wolves. There's nothing eating the deer anymore, and not to mention that we plant food plots for them all over the state of Iowa. That's like it's the, called ma- it's called yeah. corn. I, I think 98% of our land is food plots for deer right now, basically not intentionally, but that's what it is. And yeah, I, they, I
2: don't really want to bring back mammoths. Can we bring back like, bring back, like <laughs> of short I'm beans. all
4: for this <laughs> as long as they eat raccoons. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. And so the same thing with raccoons, you know, they, they used to be kept under control by natural predators and then they weren't because then they were kept it under tr- control by fur, yeah. fur trappers. And then the fur prices fell out. We weren't doing that anymore. And Can
2: we bring back the raccoon hat or something. Right. right. Let's so get we- that <laughs> back in
4: style, guys. We need some TikTok influencers <laughs> uh-huh. to bring back raccoon, you know, coonskin hats. I don't yeah. think
3: our current culture could handle that. Probably not. Yeah. But Jim,
2: you'd look really stylish. I would. Skin?
3: I would look good. Like a Davy Crockett style one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think we should
4: try. So we got to try something else different. I'm sure paid is going to love it, but yeah.
2: <sighs> okay. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you, uh, Josh. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Uh, and Thank you, Don. Thanks for coming on the show. Yep. And talking about all this uh, for almost two hours. <sighs> oh man. Uh, which uh, I like because uh, I haven't given my folks a two hour show in a while. Nice. So thanks for coming. So we're going to get paid extra for the extra time, right? <laughs> Checks in the mail. Please. Okay. <laughs> um, but also uh, just thanks for your work. I'm appreciative of it. I've been on the sidelines watching this, witnessing this uh, here and there over the years. And uh, I'm, I really appreciate what you do. I don't live here, but I'm a fan of the turtles. Um, so I'm all for it. I'm pro Pro any turtle, if, and like I said before, I don't trust people who don't like turtle. <laughs> uh, so I'm so appreciative of the work you're doing. I, if you need to, somebody come up and to help you uh, smurf trees or <laughs> trees, let me know. All right. He swamps them, he gets the swamp. Them. Yeah, you'll be the sw- swamp or not a bring, swamp. Bring thick
4: gloves, mm, locust trees. Swamper? You're the one who carries the dead locust trees off the field.
3: Swamp is hard work. So You're gonna,
4: gonna end up with a thousand thorns get. in your hand by the end of the day. It Doesn't matter what gloves you wear, they're gonna cut you. I'm gonna subcontract. Genius. <laughs> 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 <Jeez. laughs>
2: Thanks again, guys. And you know what, Jim? You know what, what? we didn't talk about? What? We didn't talk about Herp Journal. Oh never Lord. Got let's oh, give Lord. let's give five minutes on Herp Journal. Let's um, talk about how you and I met.
4: Um, how I met him because meet? of Herp Journal too. Technically,
2: me me so, too. Okay, there you go. So. Way back in the day, yeah, um, we were doing our thing on the web, uh, documenting our herp trips. I was doing it on mine, Notes from the Field, and yep. you were doing it on your. Herp herp Mike was chiseling yep. it is
3: into stone. Herp Journal, yes. Herp Journal, herp
2: journal. dot com, and so I, I stumbled across it, and I'm reading it. I'm like, these guys are doing the same thing I'm doing. They're going out, and then they're writing. It was you and um, Matt Rick- Rickless, yep. and uh, Jeff Eclair, I think sometimes. And-
3: well, Jeff, it was me and Matt that ran this, that ran yeah. the whole okay. thing, yeah. and then other people, whoever was around, would come out with us, yeah. but they weren't really involved with it as far as you know, like writing or anything. But and yeah, so
2: you, you would document your trips,
3: yes, and we documented every trip because you kind of were selective. You would document like interesting trips, where we documented every single thing we did. So. As I think the rule was if we catch more than a garter snake or a brown snake, we had to do a, a, a page. So, um, it, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. One milk snake, got to write a page. You know, that was basically <laughs> the rule. So, yeah. That, so, I,
2: in some point we met. I think we, we decided maybe we met at a, a conference.
3: I think we originally met at a Midwest Herp Symposium in Minneapolis through Jeff LeClaire. I think that's yeah. kind of how we met. But and we just kind of to go herping, right? Yeah, I think so. We're like, "Oh, we got to get together sometime." And Jeff was like, "Oh yeah, you'll love Mike. We got to go sometime." So, I think well, then we ended up at Snake Road. Yeah. In in yeah. a fall, yeah. Uh,
2: a super time we watched a uh, a cottonmouth jump off the cliff.
3: Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. That was entertaining. That was Whee! that was It helicoptered down to the ground was, from a bluff top. It was
2: amazing because you know, you think when they go when these snakes come up into the bluffs in fall, they slowly crawl and they get up in the crack. And, yeah. and then in the spring, they come back out and I'm thinking, it's spring oh They slowly crawl back out of the, you know, they come down, you know, they work their way to... No, they don't. They just launch. They launch themselves.
3: Well, I, I think that's the derpy ones that do that. <laughs> I think the, the majority of them probably do that. The derpy ones fall off the cliff. <laughs> Some of them go,
2: I saw that bird fly off the cliff. Maybe I could do it well, too. This, this codmouth fell 30 feet.
3: We don't know if he was 30. fine, though. He might have had some broken ribs or something. We would I never know. know. He landed like a cottonmouth with his mouth open because we walked over there and he's like, ah, I'm going to get you kind of look I'm, on I'm his saying, face.
2: Give him a couple, you know, 100,000 years about Eventually they learned to glide.
3: Could be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they just, they become the flying pit viper that comes and glides down out of, out of the bluffs.
3: It, it was pretty hilarious because we thought, yeah. I thought it was a turkey or something because I heard, <laughs> yeah on the bluff and i'm like what in the world is that noise must be a turkey then all of a sudden we just see this cotton mouth flying through (laughs) the air yeah Yeah. it's crazy it was it was crazy yeah
2: but that's that's how we uh first uh started hanging out together and we started doing some trips together
3: we did quite a few We texas and Mm -hmm. kentucky and we did a mexico trip once and north dakota kansas a couple times Mm -hmm. minnesota can't even remember where else i know there's others but it's all i can think of right now but yeah herp journal started in 2001 so it was one of the earlier uh herp focused herping focused websites yeah um, on the internet and then uh about 2019 i got tired of doing it because it was a lot of work yeah you know and and it, it got to the point where it was more work than it was fun you know and and you know, uh, social media came and everybody just started posting their pictures on Facebook instead. And it just got to be like
2: social media killed the wet journal star.
3: Basically. Yeah. It well, still sits out there though. You can still go look at it. Harp journal. Yeah. It's all still out there. You know, t- 18 years of data, I guess hmm. 18 years of pictures and, and tiny, tiny
2: pictures. Yeah. <laughs> little
3: pictures. They got bigger, a little bit bigger about halfway through. <laughs> So, so Jim has heard me say
4: this before, and it might get an eye roll out of him still. But Here it comes. I tell people that Herp Journal is indirectly responsible for Herp Mapper, Na Herp, and all the stuff I do. So when I when I was in my my early twenties and I was just getting back into like trying to find Herps in the area, so I'm living in Cedar Rapids, and of course I, ha- I have my holy bible, otherwise known as the Peterson Guide to Eastern and you know, Central uh reptiles amphibians of eastern central united states and i'm looking at all these maps and i see all these range maps that cover iowa and like it also say a milk snake i'm like oh well this has got to be based off fossil records like back in the 1800s there was milk snakes here right because these <laughs> things don't exist around here like i haven't seen when i look under all the time right and it's like it's showing yeah bull snakes don't exist anymore and i find this website and it's like HerpJournal.com, and they're going around and i see they have posts from my county and i'm like wait a minute these guys were out last week finding milk snakes in my county what the hell am i doing wrong you know, so I got out and then I started emailing them too. Hey guys, what can I, I want to, and, and again, I think I was good about never asking you guys for spots, Right. but I was like, listen, I want to go find this. I, I have this spot. I'm looking up and they're like, oh no, you know, and I'm like, all the rocks on this cliff are at the bottom underwater in the river. and they're like, no dumbass go to the, sorry, <laughs> dummy, go to the top. <laughs> like, oh, okay. You know,
2: so it was, it was kind of, I think if I remember right, Jim and Matt made you prove yourself. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, he, he, I finally decided to take Don out herping. And um, I thought, well, where can I take him that's going to be really hard work? So we went to some railroad because I wanted to see what he was made of, and uh, we went out to some a railroad track site where you had to look under ties, and that's like oh, the, not not normal ties yeah, though. big, big. They were like bridge support ties. Yeah, huge railroad ties. Bicep ripping ties. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what he's up uh, made of. So we, yeah, we went out and we flipped a bunch of railroad ties and caught a couple of bull snakes. Mm. And, uh, also Don learned a different lesson there at, he, uh, got to watch me pose a bull snake for pictures, Mm. which he'd never seen that before. And Don was of the idea that we just found all these snakes (laughs) perfectly coiled up in pristine (laughs) locations. Mm. And he's like, Oh, that's how you do that. I thought you just found them in perfect position. I like could not that. understand
4: why I never found these perfectly coiled snakes all over <laughs> the place.
3: <laughs> so, yeah, you got to, you got to learn a little extra there that uh, day.
2: So, yeah. yeah, like uh, looking behind the curtain a little bit. I'll yeah. say that's the
1: first time I've hanging out with these guys a lot. That's the first time I've heard that story. Oh, really? I hear a lot of the same stories, but that's the first one. That's a good huh. story.
4: <laughs> I, so was, And I think I found your site. I was searching for Jeff's name, trying to figure out who Jeff LeClaire was. And I found a post from your site. And then you guys mentioned Field Herp Forum somewhere. Yeah. And that's how I got on there and then met Greg, got to Snake Road, and then eventually met Mike down there and stuff, too. So
3: Yeah, Field Herp Forum. That was fun the back in yeah. the day.
4: Yeah.
2: yeah.
4: Oh, God, that's going back. I still host
2: that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Field Herp Forum still rolls on.
4: Still rolls on. There's still new people coming on there all the time. Um, yeah, but I, I still host it for Scott. So
3: I haven't looked at that site for 10 years.
4: I do every now and then. I've gone to to do some maintenance stuff on it. I uh,
2: I tried to get Scott on the show. Really? Uh, We talked, and it still may happen.
4: Scott, Hmm. we need to update the email settings on the forum.
2: Email me. (laughs) 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 Yeah. This Facebook's going to disappear any minute now. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's fun. Well, that's, that's
4: what's great, right? So, like, the, I mean, this is going back ways and more nostalgia, but like with Field Herb form, is like, it's there. I mean, we had that big outage. I mean, anyone who's been on Field her perform for a while would know that there was the, you know, the crash, was I think we yeah. called it. And God, we lost Kenny ray salamander post. That was, oh, like yeah, the, that
3: was the, an oh,
2: epic post. Oh, man. Now I'm feeling old. <laughs> so, I still run into people who will say, there was this one guy who made this post about salamanders, mm-hmm. and it was epic. It was every salamander species in existence. Not true, but it was. there was a lot. And it, and it just kind of went on and on. And it's on. like 10 minutes just to look through the post. I, it's right. like a book.
3: Yeah.
4: But you know, like you just said, eventually Facebook's going to disappear. Right now as yes, it is, it's hard to go through and find old things in yeah. your groups and in your posts. But it's like filter forms like this archive still of all this old content we have. Post crash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> We tried to recover some of it from archive.org, but that's you know, that's that's a fun thing too. It's like archive.org can read field herp form, but can't read Facebook posts. So archive.org has backups of some of that old stuff, even even yeah, pre crash Not Kenny Rays. Not Stella Kenny Rays Rader post, posts. trust me. I I tried. We tried so much to recover that one. So Yeah.
2: It's amazing. So is that
3: enough about her is that did you get all you wanted about Herp journal? There's well, a, I think that'll that'll okay. cover it. Yeah, I yeah. just
2: wanted to wax nostalgic. Yeah, that was fun <laughs> for because that? uh, that's how I met you. Yeah. Uh, not how I met you, but it's kind of how I met you, but it's, it's, it was it's related. Been, right. A fun
4: well, days. again, if I hadn't found Herb Journal, I wouldn't have found Field Third Form. I wouldn't have been at Snake Road to the Greg when you came and scared our owl away.
3: Oh, and if you do go look at Herb Journal, there's lots of pictures of us handling timber rattlesnakes in the old days. We don't do that. We don't. We stopped that a long time ago, but the first few years of that, there's lots of pictures of me with a hook holding the timber. I do not do that. I stopped that a long time ago. Very good. I wanted to put that disclaimer out <laughs> there. We we've, we've do all grown. not we've all grown. handle timbers. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I got, we have a,
4: you know, there's a Facebook group I have for reptiles amphibians via jim helps me post a lot of content and answer questions and one of my rules is no pictures of handling venomous snakes because you don't want to inspire the next yeah. kid to go i want to be a cool herper just like don and jim or whoever and i'm going to handle this timber and look at me
2: get it bit and yeah
4: you know the venomous snake gets the bad rep then yeah
2: well guys thank you so much josh <laughs> Yeah. real, real yeah. quick hold
4: on I, I want to double check one other thing with josh can oh. you confirm something josh and I heard, how many times did you ever actually post on field Herb forum Ooh. oh oh so, so you knew that I posted oh but no I, no i saw you post about terry sagas and i actually emailed terry I like, oh i saw this guy was out there you know is it, is it safe to go out he goes oh well that, that guy works for me i'm gonna say i probably posted twice <laughs> that's what see that's i think yeah. that's what i told him
1: and then I don't know, like I just kind of lose interest. Like, and then you got big personalities like Don on there posting like everything, and I'm like,
4: uh, I can't oh keep, no, I, I can't keep up. I wasn't that big on filter before. My my big thing back in the day was garters and browns by the dozen. That was like my joke because that's all I could <laughs> find back in the day was garter snakes and brown snakes.
2: And I think people <laughs> would say stuff like, "Don't you ever find anything else but brown? You know, but the brown snakes." Blah, 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 yeah. No. Give you crap for it. Well, no,
4: I I did that one post. God, where'd we, it might have been a Kansas trip. There was some post where we went somewhere. I was like, oh my God, we had this great trip in Kansas and I found all these brown snakes and these cool garter snakes. And I did this like big elaborate post detailing every single garter snake and brown snake we found. I was <laughs> like, yeah, we also found a couple mill snakes, bull snakes, king snakes, yeah. but whatever. And I posted like a couple pictures at the end of it and it pissed so many people off. <laughs> Can't believe you don't care about those things. Like, guys,
2: I'm joking. (laughs) Milk snakes are trash.
3: (laughs) (laughs) One of the posts on Field Herp Forum I got the most reaction to was the time we went out to that timber rattlesnake spot in Northeast Iowa and caught all those milk snakes. Remember we were talking about it earlier? Because we caught like, I think it was like 27 milk snakes at one site that day. And there was a huge variety of color and pattern (sighs) and everything. It was just amazing. And I did a post on I posted a picture of every one of those milk snakes oh. in field herp form. I think that was my biggest reaction one was like, I've never, I don't, people were saying often in that post, I don't stop long enough to like take a picture of these things to be able to look back and, and admire all the variety of that, you know? So that was my like contribution was like, like stop and look at the critters that you're catching and appreciate them. Yeah, You know, don't just go another milk snake, another milk snake, you know, or whatever.
4: Stop and snap a picture of the milk instead of stop
3: and smell the roses. Something like that.
4: We need to make that more catchy. We need that, something that That's another better. t-shirt, I think. And yeah. the third
3: t-shirt idea we've come up with tonight. <laughs> stop what, what and shoot the, the milk. Ones? What were the other t-shirts? I, I can't, we'll have to listen to the podcast to find <laughs> out. <laughs> they were good, though. I know Raccoon, that. Raccoon mitig- mitigation <laughs> squad? Yeah, or that was something that. like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think agent. Yeah. yeah. Oh, something like okay. that. Well all right tune in (laughs) you'll have to tune
2: in and find out what you said that's right okay
3: t-shirts
4: will be available for 24.99 proceeds go to saving the mud turtles
2: (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks again guys
4: thank you oh thanks a lot for having us on eight eight
2: okay
0: oh
1: wow
2: this is this is kind of Uh, nice so um you guys record weight of it too yeah Uh,
1: so what was the weight last record 31.7 31.7
4: grams. When so I you figure this is for, small. So this the one's 31.7, and that one we got last night was 5.6 grams. Yeah. <laughs> a little that's bit of crazy. a difference.
2: Yeah. Now yeah, let's weigh it just for the fun of it. Oh, And it was just recaptured last week?
1: Uh, the 26th. So okay. we had yeah. about a week ago. All weeks.
3: the way down there.
4: I need to do the actual science, mate. I know. Let's <laughs> <laughs> even get him to sit on the scale. appreciate sure.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Science so, always gets in the way
3: of having... I to was explain. trying to read turtles this way instead of this way. I just put the tag in.
2: Yeah,
4: I said a meal in it last week?
2: Yeah. Nice. What was it? 28.7.
3: 7
2: Your uh, tag reader looks like the stud finder I use. <laughs> it's the same look to it.
0: You found!
2: I wonder if we can catch that hissing on...
4: Heterodon viridus.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Tongue out and everything.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: So
1: do you take data on things we, like this? We do. So we've been uh, collecting data on everything that we capture. Okay. Because they, they so they started this project in um, the uh, uh-huh. mid 70s uh-huh. and then around uh, the late 80s, they started doing uh, faunal surveys every three years. Okay. And so we picked up that uh, project in 2018 okay. and have trying to been elevating it. And, you know, some of the things that I want to look at is potential changes in the small mammal communities based on uh, weather patterns, based on um year drought flood and okay. and so forth. So yes, we try to record all the amphibians, all the uh race runners, all uh the small mammals that we catch out here. Cuz there are there's uh three state listed species that as far as we know it's one of the only places they occur.
4: Really.
1: Uh pocket mice, uh bog lemming and a leash shrew. A leish okay. shrew. Yep. This is a meadow jumping mouse. Meadow jumping mouse. So it's all got right. a gigantic long tail. Sort of like yeah. a kangaroo and these big hind feet uh, that they hop around through this grass. So as she lets it go there, it should take off and kind of bound away. But I this like... year has been a real good year for jumping mice. We don't really know why. And we...
2: last, last, last year, didn't have this. I...
1: Yeah. And then we haven't caught very many pocket mice, which is uh, the state list. And usually we get quite a few pocket mice. Huh
2: popular uh maybe normal population fluctuations attention or who so that's the thing we're like if we keep collecting all this data there we go hopefully
1: we can go back and analyze it all and look at some of those things and could could be okay a
2: weird event you know yeah uh, another hog down there western oh, oh i gotta go okay right. so you, said you only had one right yeah oh wow so a, a new another new hog wow. okay wow How old do I think this turtle is? Yeah. Well, you can't go by the you can't go by the ring segments, no. the annually. Exactly. Um, you do
4: kind of, but not yeah.
2: Well, uh if I look at the the first mark uh, uh first uh vertebral and I look at the overlaps there, multiply by two.
0: Uh <laughs> take the that, square that root is- of negative one. Is- yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, yeah, I'm going to say this turtle is probably 30, at least 30 years old.
4: Yeah, This turtle's 65 to 70.
1: I, I would have put, I would have put right about 65, 72. <laughs> I was going to say 70. <laughs> Me
2: amigo, we're the same age. We're, we both getting Medicare next year. Awesome.
1: I thought 65 for Medicare, no?
2: I yeah. Yeah. I'm 64. Oh. So. <laughs>
1: So we started, this project's been going on so long, they marked those turtles in the late how mid-70s, they started marking them. Uh-huh. And we have recaught enough now, and we've caught some that they had caught in the 70s, and they had marked how many rings that they had counted then and about an age estimate then. We recatch those turtles 50 years later now, 40 years later. Uh-huh. And so we can look at some of that pattern, Those uh, uh, the annuli. Uh-huh and see how they've uh, degraded, where you can't really tell. Okay. And, and you can see after a while that uh, that degradation of them um, seems to hold fairly consistent that we can put an age estimate within five years when they get old, and sometimes
2: 10. All because somebody did some work hold on. 50 years ago.
4: I'd, I'd like to st- start by saying, st- like, this isn't something where you're like, let's quantify this. Science is organic. <laughs> <laughs> Josh literally sends me pictures and goes, how old do you think this turtle is? And I'm looking at it, looking at it, and I'm like, I don't know, I think this is like 45, 50. He's like, yeah, that's, that probably ends up with this. And we did that enough, and we're like, what are we looking at? I was like, I, I don't know yet. I can't tell you what I'm so seeing in the so, shell. It's <laughs>
2: the <laughs> Gestalt thing, right? He's,
1: he says I send him a picture. It's a turtle that they had originally oh, caught in like 82. It. So how I know they heard. caught it in 82. I know they said it was 10 then, and here was its size. And so I know we caught it in 2022. I send it to Don knowing 40 years has passed and they said 20 years then, then he
2: can say 55, 60. And I'm like, well, that (laughs) seems to hold true with the recapture stuff. So when they caught in, let's say this turtle you're talking about, they caught in 82, how much size difference has, not much size difference? Depends on the age when they caught it then. Uh If they caught
1: it at at an adult, you know, about 10, 11 uh, centimeter straight carapace length, Uh it might put on a 10th, maybe 2 tenths of a centimeter. Yeah, it's it's negligible.
2: That's crazy. Yeah.
1: All
3: right. I'm gonna go check raccoon traps. You guys um, don't have to walk up that far. We, we th- I thought you already had. And no, just I, had cut going, this I way. wanted to communicate first, so you could just dump into the woods and go towards the valley. Cool.
1: Ten nine.
2: Okay. If nine. you don't come back in nine. 15 minutes, do so we come out and nine, three, yeah, try to I'm find not you taken down 18. by raccoon? No, we
4: <laughs> <laughs> by fine.
3: You want to walk with.
1: You got the weight. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we should probably give it a notch. Oh
4: yeah.
2: Okay, so this one. this one doesn't have a tag and no, no. Okay, no tags and no Nine notches. So it's amazing to me that after all the time you spent marking turtles here, and the, the turtles have been marked here as far back as the seventies. Uh, Seventy three was the first year. Seventy three. You're still finding turtles that are are unmarked. So and a that's decent crazy. number
0: of them. Okay.
2: Uh, what was the rate? That uh, <laughs> one ten. That, that that sounds. Um... <laughs> All right, Mike. So you're using a triangular file to 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 basically uh, uh, abrade a notch into this internal.
4: And Mike, when he's done, you're gonna need to sniff one of those fresh notches. A no, of... so, it's actually not bad.
2: So
1: we we can count. You look at the nuchal scoot there, right, right. behind the head, and then we have a very distinct pattern where then you count to the left. Right. So that first notch is on one L and then you go two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So we have it one nine L and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, ten R. Let's cut the edge here and then kind of work away. There's usually a good amount of turtles. The uh the ornate fox turtle, that turtle of the prairie, we find a good chunk of them.
2: Back in the trees. We were
4: literally just telling the other day, I remember out here, that one nine one nine is always out there. We found 1919 in the (laughs) woods. Oh.
1: Maybe it was you.
2: Might have been me. Yeah. I kind of sound like a turtle when I go through the woods. A big turtle. A giant turtle. This is uh,
1: the perfect time of day where you'll start to hear him move. And you'll be sitting there working up to one turtle. And you're like, wait, what's that? And that's another turtle. Sneaking on through.
4: (laughs) I found one on the hill. As I was walking up to him, I found one four feet from him.
2: Oh, I got one right here. I got two right here in front of me. Two tennis ball-sized ornate. Well, I I, I smelled them. So uh, I've learned from the dogs how to smell out these turtles. So they're both facing uh, different ways. And both uh, younger. Younger Younger. ones. Wow. So yay, me. one's new. (laughs) That
4: one's a recap. Man, so much for our theory about
2: juvies not being in the woods. Well, I told you I found those three. Oh, that's right. Uh, So when we're talking about these as juvies, these are not, these are tennis ball sized turtles. These are not what we would call. Uh, juveniles, they're just younger. So we lump all of the
1: ones that we think are not breeding as juveniles. So you think those are
2: too small to breed?
0: Yes. Picture. Okay.
3: Oops.
4: So we found, by the way, uh... Are you going to take a record? No, I was... I guess I I can't. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. (laughs) um we found a little male i mean he was old but not too much bigger than these on
2: the baby's fence yesterday which i was like how saw, can this little that.
4: old guy mate with big females yeah. like he has to find the mini females too, he was
2: old and he was like 220 grams. yeah or... yeah so he wasn't big enough to to he wasn't big enough to mount the larger females that you find correct about twice his size or, or two-thirds the size 175 uh let me get pictures first oh,
4: okay sorry
1: Sometimes you gotta keep Don on task.
4: <laughs> Listen, man, we're like we're like stars right now in a he, podcast. I got <laughs> he loves to
2: tell stories and gets distracted. Well, this is like a, you know, also from my perspective, I was just like just a kid in a candy room. store. Like pictures. We're just walking along talking about finding one. box turtles and then I find two box turtles. So
4: Yeah.
1: Give us another twenty minutes and you'll find another two, I bet. Right.
2: This will this will be
1: did you guys catch any last night?
4: Yeah, we I'm, literally stopped on the fence and I go, Mike, there's one, there's one, there's one. So you got three. We got four. Four, so 65. This will be number
1: 690 for the year. capture. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
4: Am I pulling up a notch pattern or are you going to use one? Of yours? I'll, I'll get it.
1: This way. Okay. Now measurements.
2: Well, these are a lot easier to weigh and measure than- your hog nose snakes a little bit. When you're measuring the turtle with Go the calipers, you're measuring the length of the carapace from the top straight line, straight line carapace uh, with the with the calipers, and then the yep. same and then length the, with the widest side.
4: part of the shell side to side, so the widest width. Okay. And some of them are like right at the bridges where their widest are because they'll have a good oval shape, and a lot of them flare out at the back. Some and of so them you, have
2: big booties. Yeah,
4: and so you measure kind of backwards. Okay. Um, you got the 145 for the weight. Good. Eight, nine. Ten. Eight...
2: Okay, 9.4. 9.4 is the length. Okay. So
1: we're trying to replicate what they had started measurement-wise in the 70s to make it easier to compare from one year to the next. Because with turtles, turtle biologists, some people will do shell height, some people do the longest uh, uh, carapace length, some will do the midline, some will do the curved. And so we're just trying to continue that process so that we can see any trends over time.
4: Oh, notch pattern. Oh, sorry. Uh,
2: that one will be when you uh, add a notch pattern. You're you're doing sequential. Um, uh, like last one was one what one nine L one nine R. They're not sequential like
4: though because we find old notch patterns.
2: And then we generate
4: a list of what's available based on what we have in our database. And so it ha- sometimes it's filling in the gaps
2: between what was used okay. and what wasn't. So does the, the database tell you what you can use next? Yeah. yeah. I have a. Th- we just started
4: this, right? I have a thing that shoots out a Google spreadsheet for us every night. Okay. And it lets us know what we use. so Ten, it, 10,
2: it, 10, 11 1, 3 Okay. So basically that thing is, is giving you the next unique number t- or yeah. pattern number to use. You guys are so smart. This is- uh, I like to say our team... Uh, complements each other
1: quite well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where well, Don's the, uh, the computer guy. He comes up with these fancy, yeah. you know, things. The app to collect all the data. Jim, Jim, I always say is the he's backbone. Our e- he's our efficiency engineer.
0: Yeah,
2: he keeps things, he <laughs> keeps Jim. things moving. Yeah.
1: You know, he's on, on top of
2: it. If Jim had a railroad, it would be on time all the time. I know. Let's we'll start calling him Mussolini. Oh, <laughs> Oh brother, I'm gonna have to cut that one out. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I will say, uh, I just recently listened to the podcast. Oh, cool. like I, I shy away from her podcast because, like, I get that like uh, fomo. Like, I'm like, oh, I wish I would have thought that, uh, you know, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. those sorts of things. So I listen to stuff that I can zone out on. Uh. But the the couple that I was. Those little humor tidbits that sometimes people don't pick up on, I felt, <laughs> I I loved. And I texted these guys and I was like, the the mics that you've been using, if it is just this, sound great. And then you got such a like radio friendly voice that I'm oh, like, oh, this thank is you, very,
2: yeah. very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll show you, I'll show you my actual recording gear later. So I use this in the field, but I usually use it with a sure sh- set of sure microphones. But okay. uh. Right now, this is real. This is much easier to do with uh, just the HN1 yeah, or HN4 recorder. So, okay.
0: I
4: got it sidetracked. Up. That's a
2: gorgeous turtle there.
4: See, that's, that's the problem that's, I've had with podcasts too, is that either they're all about me, 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 look what I did, I'm cool, or they're dry. And so you have to have that where you're having a good talk, but keep it casual, like you're having a beer on a campfire. Yeah. A good scientific talk where people don't yeah. mind throwing in a joke in a quick way yeah. here and there.
2: That's my that's my approach. Drinks after dinner. That's my yeah. approach. <laughs>
4: Mike after dark.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I keep threatening that, but I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I'm going to take a camera photo of that one. I think that's one of the better turtles. Pretty it's pretty just wild. gorgeous. Within so t- two meters. Holy cow! You just found that. <laughs> yeah. So that's a uh, just a couple inches long. A little guy.
1: Yeah, probably um, about. Five ish years.
2: Okay. And uh we are uh I'm gonna say Six five half centimeters five feet from where we were where we discovered these other two. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. And
4: he'd just been sitting on the grass the whole time.
2: So that one's too, is that once uh large enough to work up and, yeah. and it is a uh it is not a recap. It is a it is a new turtle. It is a new turtle. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna take a picture of this guy.
1: Told you, you give yourself ten more minutes,
0: you'll
2: buy another two. Well, you weren't, you weren't kidding. No.
4: Should point out that there's heavy security on this side. It is a private <laughs> preserve. It is fenced. There's guards. There are cameras. <laughs>
0: yeah. Let's stress yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I figured that's something we would touch base on uh, in during the the course of uh, yeah. our recordings.
4: There are a few game cameras even out here that send real time notifications when they are triggered to people at the companies. Yeah.
2: How many rings do you think
4: I'm at? God, you got six primary big ones. And if you look at these little ones. <laughs> <laughs> but look at this like I, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like his first year growth was, yeah, it didn't quite make a ring, but I think that was a horrible year. And then he's got, look at this one right here too.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I saw those those sort of those secondary ones too
0: and one with those. daff. Uh... Yeah. Go ahead. 65. Ooh, good one.
2: Yeah. Was that the weight? Yeah, 65 grams. So that, <laughs> 65. Is that, okay. Is that good because it's heavy for a little guy? Or uh, not? It,
1: we don't have too many little ones. Like, you know, there's not a lot of studies that will have uh, those smaller age classes. Okay. And so we've been getting a, a good amount of recapture and growth data in these natural settings. And so having more of these increases that sample size and gets some some great information.
2: So a little guy like this, you will be able to, because this guy will grow or gal will grow. Right. uh, So it's not negligible growth, it's uh, distinctly measurable growth over some period of time that you're able to capture.
1: So this one then, like if we were doing this study again in three years and we recaught it, uh, my guess is it would put on about, what, a centimeter, one and a half centimeter growth? Yeah. Uh, What was the last...
4: Five, nine on the widths. Okay. Six, seven on the plastron. Thank you. Um, we've talked with people over the years, Mike. We call it the, I don't know if, there, if this was a term beforehand. I know 10, Josh- 10, 11, 1, 3. Oh, yeah. Um, the there, illusion, I, can, I can do it. The illusion of persistence and that, you know, we've told you, we find all these box turtles and the overwhelming majority are old adults, you know, old, right. old adults. And Josh would have to tell you some percentage of what we think are young ones, you know, even say 20 and younger- is a small percentage, <clears throat> and so the population seems healthy today, but the recruitment may not be there. And at some point, all these old turtles are going to just die. Right. So to see young ones is obviously a great thing that usually, we know the recruitment there. Yeah.
2: Usually we just call it the recruitment. You know. Right. I guess we just use that generic or not generic, but shorthand term. Right. Yeah. We always say, "Oh, recruitment." Oh.
0: <laughs> you find we'll find you
1: even smaller
2: what would and, that say it again
1: uh, this is an interesting thing that I think or is a good thing working with Don and Jim is we're out here and we're catching loads and loads of turtles we're collecting tons of data but we constantly have questions that we're wondering why, what, how? And so here's an instance where we find three juvenile turtles all within a meter and a half of each other in the same location in in the woods. Why are these three right here? Like, they have to know that the other is right there because the two were within, you know, 12 inches of each other, a foot from each other. Uh-huh. And then that third one's just a couple feet away. What causes them to be right here did they all come together do they meet up here like why why are they here on this particular day and so we always bat around a bunch of hypotheses and think about things and how we could potentially answer those questions and,
2: uh, yeah like are they do they smell each other or do they exactly uh, i
1: think they, they i think it's more of they uh in here they hear each other too
2: oh okay That's okay. oh, this good one we just released
1: yeah, yeah. Because, like I said, as you work a turtle up, sometimes there will have been one close that all of a sudden you'll you'll hear that movement, um, and then I think the turtles can also hear us and will start moving away, uh, and that might be one of the reasons why they, besides the shade, uh, they like this area is so it's easier to find one another. Hmm.
4: I don't know where I first heard this general concept, but uh, we talk about it. it's like if you've reached the point where you've run out of questions to ask. You're not doing science well. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. There's always more questions, aren't there? Yeah. And then
0: this
1: is an area that we've walked, like, dozens of times this year. And, you know, we've only caught, encountered the one individual. Those other two went undetected. So the box turtles, you know, with all this data that we're collecting, like I say, we had, we have almost 700 captures this year. And over the course of... However many years we've been doing it, we're at almost 2,400 total captures. And, you know, what are we doing with Area all this?
4: 1,000 individual?
1: Yeah, what are we doing with all this data? Hopefully, we can create uh, this detectability, you know, look at survival rates uh, because this project's been going on for so long and show that as you're trying to do like a population estimate... The detectability is really low. We're out here every day for two months and never come across this
4: one individual. And then the next year, all of a sudden, there it is. There it is. <laughs> well, even, even I think with adding to detectability, uh, we mentioned a little bit ago, so up here in this field, we had the Turtle Mark nine l nine r where we found him for like a few days in a row. And you could just go out there and walk him up. And then just one day, he's not there. And then the next day, you find him in the same spot again. And it's like, well, did he move and come back? Or did we just not spot him? He was down in a better form. He was under the sand. He was under some brush, whatever. We know the turtle's in the area, but we can't right. find him.
2: Right. It's not that easy to, unless they're moving and making noise, or they're, or you can see the shell.
4: Yeah. When, the ones we radio track are sometimes almost completely buried with only a little bit of their shell showing at the top of the sand. And they're under the grass like that. You could be walking by 100 box turtles out here and not even know it. Not even know it. Yeah.
0: What? Uh,
4: 112R. One tree. And I see something interesting? She's been in the water not too long back. Yeah. She's stained with cyanobacteria. Oh, yeah. So we get that okay. bloom down there in the pond right now. So she's been down she's in the pond in the not pond. too long back. Right. We've caught her five times
1: this year. The last one was a week ago. So let's just give the weight on her.
2: 376. So I had to record her off while we were uh, talking about where we're at. We are under the canopy here. We are in the shade of, of a big stand of cedar and uh, locust trees, the wolf bark. Um and the box turtles here. I heard one. I heard another one. Maybe, maybe the box turtles are using this habitat. Um, it's uh, a good place for them to stay in the shade. Uh, they don't get too hot in here. They can uh, go to a sunny spot if they need to warm up a little bit. And uh, they're just walking around foraging in here.
4: And you should clarify these are ornate, not eastern.
2: Yeah, these are ornate box turtles. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, we'll make that clear, you know, later on, but yeah. Um,
4: Not hearing anything else.
1: Yeah,
2: it was just a one-off, so. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and that's an adult female there. So, at this time of year, we've caught her five
1: times. Uh, What we've been trying to do is just take weights to see when they become gravid, because we, Ah. we start to find them out there and we find them along the fence, and we assume they're nesting, and now with enough data that uh, everybody's been collecting, I can show that they gain about that 30, 40 grams right about this time of year, and you'll see a big
2: movement like that. Okay, you'll see a movement from the shaded areas out into the sunny areas where they go to find a place to put their nest. Yep.
4: How quick do their eggs develop internally? Because I I checked her, and I don't feel anything obvious yeah, there. there. I
2: think her weight's
1: pretty pretty consistent she's probably going to be a later june nester
2: so she'll be out there laying her eggs and then our our friends the western and eastern hog noses will be <laughs> looking for those eggs correct along with the uh, slider eggs and snapping turtle eggs and whatever other turtle eggs they can find correct
4: you imagine being a western hog finds that snapping turtle nest you oh. have to invite his friends over for dinner
1: <laughs> actually don she is uh probably gravid at 376 we caught her earlier this year at 343 so oh. she is up 33 grams and usually when we catch them um, you know months a month you you typically see almost no difference in the weight except for right now when they're holding eggs
4: okay yeah i know i couldn't get pinky to pinky checking her um but if she if they have a small clutch, I, I'm i not necessarily as good at feeling that, I know.
2: So what were you trying to, to detect eggs in her?
4: Yeah, if you basically stick your pinkies up in front of the rear legs into the armpit of it, you can kind of push inwards and feel the bumps of the eggs. Okay. There might be.
1: I can't say for certain, though. Sorry, girl. Go back to hide.
2: Okay, she's just dug back into the...
0: Leaf
2: litter. Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Josh, Don, and Jim. You know I never know what the sweet spot is for the length of an episode, but at two and a half hours this is one of the longer ones, so I hope that was okay. Uh, Hopefully in the future I can report back to you uh, on the status of the mud box and hog populations and uh, maybe point you to some publications about the ongoing survey and conservation work. And if I could wish for one takeaway for everyone from this episode, it might be uh, a fresh perspective on these animals. Uh, If you see an adult turtle in the wild, uh, chances are they've been around a lot longer than you have. And that's something to think about. And uh, also, please be careful when you rescue any turtle off the road. We want you to be around to rescue more. So uh, look both ways. And thanks for listening, everyone. That's it for episode 86. I want to thank Dr. Josh Otten, Don Becker, and Jim Shirash for coming on the show, for being good friends, and uh, let me tag along and find out all about their work in Iowa. I also want to say thanks once again to Jerry Stallman for supporting the show, and as always, I want to say thanks to all of the So Much Pingle patrons who keep the show rolling on into the future. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help out, it's easy to do, and it costs about as much as a cup of delicious coffee. Just go to patreon.com slash so much and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so muchpingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And, you know, I say this every time, but I do like hearing from folks. I like to hear your thoughts and opinions and guest suggestions, you know, whatever it is you got. You can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com, and so muchpingle is all one word, as usual. And please note that I am also on Instagram and Mastodon now under the So Much handle. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better.